Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, the second in our Spooktober examination of spooky films that may not be getting the attention that they deserve. Uh, tonight's episode focuses on perhaps, I don't know, what do you think, Kate, a, a forgotten part of Peter Jackson's film milieu. Uh, the man who made The Lord of the Rings, but uh, we're going to be taking a look at 1996's The Frighteners. As always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim. I am joined by Catherine. That's right, my sister. And we're going to talk about this forgotten little chunk of Peter Jackson's film history, uh, the film that in many ways got him The Lord of the Rings, uh, both in terms of getting him the visibility necessary to pitch such a project but also outfitting him with the special effects expertise necessary to produce it. And this film, The Frighteners, is a wonderful little one. Uh, a little bit spooky, a little bit funny, not unlike last week's episode focusing on the burbs. Uh, but certainly one that we're going to have some fun chatting about tonight. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, what you been watching? What you been up to, Kate? Anything going on? Well, uh, my husband and I started The um, Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, I didn't watch it, you know, as soon as it started up, as soon as it released. Um, but we're we're going through it now. I've read The Turn of the Screw many, many times. Um, mm -hmm. And, of course, I've seen you know, The Innocents and you know, several other film adaptations of the story. So I'm really anxious to see what they do with it. Um, I love Mike Flanagan. You know, I was a, I was big into the haunting of Hill house, another book that I love. Um, but I liked what they did with that series. So yeah, I've been watching that. And I also picked up, uh, an Oculus quest two. So I've been watching mm. a lot of VR 180 content on YouTube and, uh, that's been really fun. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely interested in the Oculus quest two myself. Uh, I've, I've looked at it a few times, definitely something. I don't really have a space for it. My office would probably work, but I know it's uh, definitely more forgiving on that than a lot of other VR headsets. You know, you're not hanging stuff from your walls so that you can square off the space or anything like that. Uh, so I'm definitely interested. I think it's something that I want to uh, pursue as well, mostly just because I want to play Half-Life Alex. That's really... That's really what I want to do as far as VR is concerned. But I know there's lots of other awesome stuff out there. Uh, so not a huge watching week for me. Uh, I was sick a couple of days, so I was able to uh, you know, binge a couple of things as I was just kind of laying on the couch and able to move in any significant way. And uh, so I stumbled across a CBS show that just got added to Netflix called Evil. Uh, which apparently did very well. I I don't watch network television. I don't have a television package, so you know I'm, I'm very. I don't up. get channels. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Haven't done that since like 2003. So I, I don't keep up with like the fall slate of network television uh, in any form or fashion. Uh, but uh, this one was you know trending in the U.S. and and uh, it had it's got Ben from Lost in it. Uh, he's the main antagonist. Yay. But uh, the premise is pretty good, fairly standard. I mean, it, it is a CBS procedural. Let, let's lay that out on the table, right? This is a CBS procedural, all of the standard hallmarks of a, a law and order, a CSI, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But 
with a weird twist. So the, the main character is a forensic psychologist who is approached as a result of working on a, a case where the uh, accused perpetrator is using an insanity plea and claiming that he was possessed by a demon. And and that's how, why he committed the crimes. And so this forensic psychologist who's basically been hired by the district attorney's office to prove that the guy uh, is capable of, of going through with trial, that he's, he's not, you know, so far gone that he can't even be tried under normal circumstances, is approached by a priest who has, is an assessor, basically, who goes in on these cases and tries to determine whether or not the individual is legitimately possessed for the church um, or is, is suffering from some sort of mental delusion, schizophrenia, you know, something along those lines. And so she kind of gets pulled into that world. And as a result, you know, we get this interesting setup. It's the, it's the X-Files setup, you know, skeptic and believer um, with Asif Mandvi in there as the IT guy who basically figures out how all these experiences take place. So, you know, like, oh, we hear, hear a weird moaning sound in the background of some recording that the person took. He goes in and is like, ah, the dishwasher was clogged and it was making this noise because it was running at 2 a.m. and all this stuff, that kind of thing, uh, which is kind of funny. But uh, an interesting premise, you know, they it's every episode is, is standalone, but they've got kind of these overarching stories that come back through. And, and there's some genuinely, you know, sort of creepy moments in there. Nothing too far gone. Again, it's a CBS procedural, but um, interesting enough that it kept my attention and I, I kind of binged my way through it. Uh, the only other, yeah, I mean, it was surprisingly okay. Definitely for, you know, it's on Netflix, just go check it out kind of thing. Uh, it certainly fits the bill. Uh, the only other really significant thing was that I'd had on my list for a long time uh, to watch the most recent Halloween reboot, remake, continuation. How was whatever. that? <laughs> um, better than I expected. Oh, that's good. Right, that way. Because it pretty much ignores everything after Halloween 1, which is probably smart. Um, you know, Halloween 2 is whatever, is a quickie cash grab. I mean, Carpenter's even said as much. He's like, we did it for the money. Like, it's the only reason we made another one. Um, and then when he, you know, Season of the Witch is its own thing, you know, and I, I love it for what it is, but it's not a Michael Myers movie. Uh, and then pretty much from four on, it's like, what is this? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> He's not Jason. Stop trying to make him Jason. I mean, they made the Friday the 13th movies to, to chase the money you made from Halloween. Why are you following them down that road? Um, so pretty much this one picks up exactly, well, 40 years after the events of Halloween 1, Laurie Strode has become a, a PTSD-fueled survivor slash prepper who has built her life around the inevitability that Michael Myers is going to come back for her someday and, hmm. and basically ruined her family as a result. Her daughter hates her, doesn't want anything to do with her. Uh, she's got her own kid now who's in high school. And, you know, they're, the, the thing I love, the, I loved about it was that the whole thing gets kicked off by a, a true crime podcaster. <laughs> so huh. this true this true crime podcaster is trying to like understand who Michael Myers is and so he 
gets a friend in the Justice Department. Because this is like 40 years ago, so nobody really, really gives a shit about Michael Myers anymore. He's just been stuck in an institution. And he's in like his 60s now, right? And it presumes that, because at the end of one, he gets shot and presumably killed. They establish that, you know, there was an officer on scene who wouldn't let them finish him off kind of thing. So um, these true crime podcasters, they get his mask from like the evidence lockup and they bring it to the mental health facility where he is and is about to be transferred out of to some like deep dark prison that he'll never ever see the light of day again mm. and and they were basically trying to get him to speak because he hasn't said anything and but showing him his mask like triggers something and he ends up escaping of course and it kind of kicks the whole thing in um well shot very very considerate of the original sort of does some interesting sort of shot inversions like shows us similar things but with different meaning behind them a decently clever script, you know, more than I would expect out of a, you know, slasher remake kind of thing. I mean, I will say this, miles above that horrifically bad Nightmare on Elm Street reboot they tried to do. Ugh. Like, that thing was awful. Um, way better than the multiple attempts to sort of kick off Texas Chainsaw Massacre and even Friday the 13th. Like, all those those attempted reboots have all been, like, mediocre at best. And this was certainly a cut above that. So, well, I, I don't know. Probably, I mean, it's a more interesting time, premise right? than I figured it would be. It was actually Danny McBride. It's the one who wrote it. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and his writing partner. But, like, yeah, I mean, Danny McBride wrote it. And it's uh, David Gordon Green, who's you know did, like, Pineapple Express and all those stoner comedies. So it's it's not, like, the people you would expect. And that ends up being a pretty significant asset. Well, I mean, with a, a thing out. that we've seen so many times before, you kind of have to reach outside of the typical people to write something mm -hmm. fresh. Yeah, you've got to have that take on it. And this one certainly tries. There are certainly some threads that I think get dropped, maybe stuff that got killed in the editing room, like the the, the daughter, the high school-aged granddaughter of Laurie Strode, I guess. Uh, she's got like a, a a boyfriend who's supposed to be like from the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing. Like he comes from a bad family, but you know, she believes in him. They get in a fight about halfway through the movie and then he just disappears. Like we never see him again. And I was like, I, I thought he was going to come back. I thought he was going to like try and rescue her and then get smoked or something, you know, and I don't think that's a spoiler or anything, but basically he is the person that disables her phone. Because they get in a fight and he like gets pissed and he like throws her phone in the punch bowl or whatever Halloween dance they're at, and that that's why nobody can get a hold of hers because he trashed her phone, and and he just never resumes a, a presence in the film. He just goes away. It's like, well, oh, all right then. We don't need right. you anymore. No, get lost, man. <laughs> um, what about the body count? But so I mean, there's there's some weird stuff like that, but otherwise, uh, you know, I think surprisingly solid film. Some good. Good gore effects, as you would expect, and uh, Will Patton. I, mean, I always love seeing Will Patton and stuff. That's yeah. Fun. But yeah, so I mean, if you haven't watched it yet, it's. I think it would be a. This is a good time of year to engage with a Halloween horror movie. But, uh, but yeah, other than that, I mean, a few things here and there, but uh, those were definitely the biggies this week that I had time for, and only because I was <laughs> late up home sick. So I uh, don't know if it was worth it, but. Enjoy it. 
but well, I guess that means we need to delve into the Frighteners. Uh, again, I hate to call it a forgotten Peter Jackson project, but the fact that it wasn't really released in in modern video format until the release of King Kong tells you a lot. Like basically the the DVD version of this that I own was the one that they released as kind of like a special edition around like the hype of King Kong, even though of course King Kong was not very good. But, not worth um, hyping. <laughs> but uh that that prompted them to sort of bring this, you know, Peter Jackson project from ninety six forward. And and I'm glad, but you I think know, it was just an awkwardly timed piece because it very... it was really good, but it you know it it didn't have anything backing it up. It had Robert Zemeckis as the production you know credit, but I don't think that meant as much in nineteen ninety six and so Mm-mm. people just didn't have a reason to go see it i mean if if this had been made post Lord of the Rings, I think people would have loved it. Oh, I think so um. You know, part of the problem was it was released in a, a really crowded 1996 marketplace. I mean, this this movie went up against Independence Day. Yeah, can we so. talk about why this came out in July? <laughs> um, um, they moved it up the release. They did three months. It was supposed to be a fall release, and they they moved it up because you know a yeah. fall release would have made sense. The movie takes place mm-hmm. in the fall, and it's a horror, and movie. it's a horror movie, and. Would have been a great October release. Probably would have been a, a bigger cult success faster. Yeah. I mean, apparently Universal was so hyped on it. Like, they felt it was it was really, really good. that it, Good enough to release confident. now. Release it now. Yeah, they, <laughs> they felt confident putting out in the summer, and it, it just did not find purchase. This movie made you know, $3 million under its budget. So it certainly was a, a box office failure, despite being fairly well-received critically. Fairly well-received, not, not fantastically, unfortunately. Well, the the film that sort of landed of Peter Jackson's before this was Heavenly Creatures, wasn't it? Yes, right. The film that, that basically put Peter Jackson on the map was uh, a 1994 film that he made called Heavenly Creatures, which was based on a true story of two young girls in New Zealand who committed a murder and then proceeded to cover it up together it's a wonderful uh, movie uh it is it's careful and considerate uh the most you know the modern analog would be uh the lovely bones you know peter jackson kind of tried to revisit that genre of film with the lovely bones but unfortunately it seems that once he's once he turned the corner in terms of scale i don't think he's ever been able to scale back down and, and Lovely Bones, I think, was a film that that had a lot of unnecessary cruft because he was trying to make it more epic than it needed to be. But Heavenly Creatures is a very well-balanced movie. Uh, it's also, you know, arguably what kicked off the career of Kate Winslet. She'd had several roles before that in, in some English productions, obviously. But the... Um, Heavenly Creatures is is most likely what got her Titanic, which is where her film sort of went crazy. Um, So Kate Winslet and uh, Melanie Linsky, who uh, makes an appearance in The Frighteners. uh, One of those sort of like faces that you see and go, oh yeah, I know who that is. Uh, She's probably most famous in the United States for playing the crazy neighbor on Two and a Half Men that's in love with... uh, 
Is she in love with John Cryer's character? I, I legitimately can't remember. I think she is. Um, uh, no, she's in love with Charlie. She's in love with, with Charlie's character. I honestly couldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a while, man. Uh, <laughs> We've already been through uh, this. TV is not a thing for me. But she did that for like a decade, right? So, I mean, very, very successful there. And now she's done a, a lot of really good independent projects, including, what is it, I Don't Want to Live on This Planet Anymore, that one, that Netflix movie with uh, Elijah Wood. Mm. I think she did that. Uh, I don't remember what the name of that is, but... Um, but yeah, she's, she's also great. And, and that's really where Jackson started before then he had made a bunch of gore films, slasher films. You know, one of my personal favorites was released in the United States is dead alive, uh, which I, I still have my, my VHS copy downstairs Mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, but, uh, it's original title in New Zealand was brain dead. Uh, and he made another one before that. Was it meet the feebles? Yep. I guess that's a great movie. Uh, which is also great. It's 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 a harder watch. It's you have people... to be into critiquing Muppets. If you're into critiquing right. Muppet yeah. movies, it's up your alley, and you yeah. have to have a pretty dark sense of humor. <laughs> it is very dark. Uh, Peter Jackson's first two sort of swings at filmmaking, Meet Feebles and, and Brain Dead, are, are both. Uh, Brain Dead's a kind of love letter to to the zombie film. You know, he, he's obviously doing, for the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> he's obviously doing his version of a Romero project, uh, but so over the top. Uh, Dead Alive is, is a ton of fun. We may do it at some point on this. I, it would be hard to, to fit it into the, the failure piece category because it was never really intended for wide release. You know, it, it played in the festival circuit and made it out in a few places through distribution. But uh, it was a small film and always intended to be a small film. But it's a great zombie movie. It's it's probably most famous for the the climax of the film where the hero basically just hoists a lawnmower onto his shoulder <laughs> and walks into a walks into a crowd of zombies and, and it's just limbs flying everywhere. It's a very goopy film. Uh, there's a lot of goop in in Brain Dead. Getting yeah, like I won't lie, out. it grossed me out when I was a kid. I still loved it because it was funny, but it it was gross. Oh yeah, it's it's a gross film, and there are moments in the Frighteners that that tread on that ground. Um, you know, most of the, the ghost effects are, are really in the same ballpark. It's a lot of the same techniques on display, but, uh, so then he, he makes heavenly creatures, which is a very legitimate film, quote unquote. Uh, it gets a lot of international attention and, and pretty much people just start offering him projects. So the frighteners actually was developed initially to exist under the, uh, the then somehow burgeoning uh, Tales from the Crypt film series. So at that point, we had had uh, Demon Knight, uh, and I believe, what is it, Bordello of Blood? Is that the second one and the last one, I guess? Yes. But there had been a couple of Tales from the Crypt movies, and this was developed as one of those. And and basically, Robert Zemeckis, who was involved in the production of all of those and was originally going to direct this script and this concept that he was working with Jackson on, he decided that it would be better developed as, a, as its own project. Right? Instead of hoisting it under the Tales from the Crypt banner, uh, let it stand on its own, which I think was a great choice because the Tales from the Crypt movies are not great. No. I like Demon Knight. Like, Demon Knight's fine. Watching Billy Zane run around and pretend to be a demon and blow <laughs> his heads up and stuff is, is a wonderful time. Uh, you can't go wrong. But... Tales from the Crypt is a, a horror franchise, you know, couldn't have died faster for me. 
um, I, I was never a big fan, even though it was a, a very successful horror franchise at the time. And so Frighteners gets spooled out onto its own. Uh, Peter Jackson fights for and wins with the studio at convincing them to shoot the entire thing in Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, which at the time was, was not, there was no film industry there, right? No. Other than the, the one that Peter Jackson had developed. So this really laid the groundwork for Lord of the Rings. And Jackson has said as much that without the Frighteners happening to build up that film infrastructure and more importantly, the special effects infrastructure of, of the then brand new Weta Digital, uh, Lord of the Rings probably wouldn't have happened. Um, so we'll talk about that as we get there, uh, because this film does have a tremendous number of CG special effects shots for 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 CG shots, which for a, a movie of this budget in 1996 was extreme. Um, you know, we're really only a couple years past Jurassic Park, which had set the new standard for CG shots in a film. And that one had like 75, maybe even less than that. So uh, Frighteners kind of occupies an interesting space in terms of special effects history as well. But the, the basic rundown uh, is that we have a... I mean, we'll call him what he is. He's Ghostbuster, uh, Frank Bannister, or Barrister, excuse me, who lost his wife in a car accident several years before, and all after that event has now been able to see and interact with the dead, right? Namely, the, the disembodied spirits of people that have moved on, but not yet gone, you know, above or below, kind of trapped on the earthly plane. Played and by he's the used fabulous Michael J. Fox. That's right. Uh, in his final feature film role. Um, it was after this that he decided that uh, being away from his family for long periods of time to shoot films was not what he wanted to do. He took Spin City, which was a TV job almost directly after this, and did it for several years. Uh, and then sort of retired from active, on-camera um, performance due to his, his ongoing uh, struggle with Parkinson's disease. Uh, which is very evident in this film. Um, he is is working very hard to hide his Parkinson's uh, tremors, but they are, are pretty evident at some times. Um, but uh, it does star Michael J. Fox, and he is, is great. Uh, it is easy to forget just how charismatic Michael J. Fox is. And this but, is uh, sort of an interesting role for him, too, because it's not an especially likable character. No, if anything, it's the opposite. Barrister is meant to be, at least for the first chunk of the film, uh, a bit ambiguous in terms of, are we supposed to like this guy? Is this someone that we're supposed to respect and appreciate? Or is it someone that we're supposed to not really trust? And um, he he does an interesting job with it, for sure. Uh, so Barrister has decided to use his ability to see ghosts to... Um, basically profit right he can manufacture a haunting with his ghost friends and then be the person who goes in and fixes it right who exercises the demons uh, and receives a paycheck to boot uh, which we see him run that uh, that scam a couple of times in the film uh, and his ghost friends are are kind of really the main supporting cast of the movie so uh, in this particular case, what he runs up against is a mysterious force 
in his his town, which I think they called Riverside, something like that, Fairfield, um, you know, generic USA town name. <laughs> Somewhere uh, in America. <laughs> Somewhere in America. That's definitely not America, because nowhere in America looks like that. <laughs> uh, we have uh, a number of people being killed by a mysterious force that, uh, you know, there's never any witnesses. And, and Barrister, of course, is runs up against this force and is the only one to truly understand what it is. Uh, so it's it's a cool premise, right? It's it's a, a modified version of the Ghostbusters premise, but with a cool hook and, uh, and an interesting, you know, sort of villain and backdrop for the story. But uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, in terms of its, its failure, uh, it, it was decently received critically, right? So it has a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes out of a, a rough total count of professional reviews of 40. Um, but I will say that the top critics, right, which is usually the ones that I focus on, because um, it's easy to get out into the weeds with, with film reviewers, but uh, of the top critics, that percentage was much lower of people who liked it, right? Of the, like, 15 or so top critical reviews from the time period, probably only three of those said that this film was worth your time. Uh, so I pulled just a couple uh, so we can get sort of a, a broad idea. Uh, the first is uh, Todd McCarthy uh, from Variety, who said the story was originally conceived as an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and that is perhaps what it should have remained, as the thinness of the conceit shows throughout, painfully so, in the first half. Uh, so this was, amongst all the reviews that I, I looked at, was one of the most common complaints, is that the plot feels a bit thin. There, in terms of the major beats that we need to get through to complete the story as written, there's not a ton of stuff, right? Uh, and a lot of time is spent, the first 30 minutes really, is is spent just really establishing Frank and, and what he does. Um, you know, we're... We're old hats, you know, we kind of know the basic beats of script writing, right? You've got your first 10 minutes to, to get your setup in. By your first 30 minutes, you need to have your main characters and your basic central plot established. And, and this movie does that, but not cleanly, right? It's it's not the, the, the fastest at it. And, and it saves a lot of its sort of setup for later in the movie, at least as far as clarifying things. Um, so I don't have an issue with that, but a lot of people did complain that the plot didn't feel substantial enough to occupy a two-hour film. But, I I um, feel like that's a case of of when the movie came out and what kind of climate reviewers were existing in. You know, it's one of those things where I feel like reviewers, if they watched a film like this now, would have a completely different take on it. I think the particulars of... The particulars of Peter Jackson's style, and really it's a similar complaint to what we saw with the reviews on the Burbs last week, right? It's that sort of genre confusion and a lack of really defined tone, which Jackson doesn't really care about, right? Like, he loves to blend tone, uh, especially at this point in his career. Lord of the Rings is a, is a kind of different beast. Um, even though I think it has similar issues, right? I think we're just more forgiving because it's so big, you know, like... <clears throat> well, we, you know, everybody movie... went into that expecting those problems. Right. But um, maybe not with this movie. Yeah, again, Peter Jackson was an unknown quantity at this point. 
Um, you know, they didn't know what they were necessarily getting into. But so thinness of plot, that's one of the major complaints. Um, Janet Maslin, the actors can't keep the film's mood from verging on hysteria as the story roams all over the map. The Frighteners has flitted everywhere, even to heaven and hell, before it's over. Uh, so again, just another reference to that to the, the tonal inconsistency of the film. A lot of reviewers felt that it just sort of verged, veered wildly from tone to idea. You know, we've got Arlie, Ermy, you know, shooting twin M60 machine guns at, at dead bodies. And then, you know, we're at a funeral and a guy's begging that his, his wife be able to see him again. You know, we're just kind of swinging from place to place. I don't think the film's quite as unfocused as that makes it out to be. But that's another sort of common complaint. Uh, Edward Guthman from the San Francisco Chronicle. An object lesson in what to avoid when making the transition from low-budget film to studio production. Hmm. Uh, which, again, I saw a lot. I saw a lot of people referencing Peter Jackson's lack of experience and that this film was was tied to that lack of experience, that he didn't have the chops to handle a film of this size yet, uh, which is a common thing you see when you see a director transition. You know, honestly, we've we've seen it a bunch with the Marvel films, right, as these small indie directors get these huge budgets and then, you know, take their swing at the big time. And, you know, Marvel is enough of a machine that it, it's been able to sort of make sure that they produce a base level of quality. But you still see those reviewers saying, hey, this director wasn't ready for this. This is too big, uh, which I don't know is a, if it's always a valid point of criticism, right? If you feel like their inexperience caused a particular issue within the film, Okay, but just to claim that their lack of experience in and of itself was a problem, I think, is, is generally you know, not helpful. Uh, but, you know, Guthman did have some other specific things about the film, its total variation, other issues like that. Um, but a lot of people seem to, to sort of harp on that pretty extensively. And uh, then, of course, Roger Ebert. Uh, incredible the amount of work that went into The Frighteners. And also appalling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and his big thing was mostly just, it is a special effects marvel, right? It definitely was for 1996, but that it, it doesn't necessarily tell a convincing story in being that marvel. Um, so the common problems, as we said, thin plot. A lot of special effects, but not necessarily to service a particularly good story. Um, tons of skill on display from Jackson. Many people mentioned that, you know, it's obvious that Jackson has talent. It's obvious that he's got a good eye, but that it just didn't necessarily amount to much with this project. Uh, totally inconsistent and lots of wild swings in mood and tone and, uh, a lot of the reviews, many of the reviews, Gene Siskel's review noted... He hated it. He did not care for this. Uh, he noted specifically that that Michael J. Fox's star was fading, right? And a lot of reviews mentioned that, that, like, why is Michael J. Fox in this movie? What is going on? I mean, obviously, the Zemeckis connection. I mean, like, that's why Michael J. Fox is in this movie, but... Um, a lot of people just felt that it was a sign that, that Michael J. Fox's star was, was headed down. I feel <clears throat> like 
that is everybody wanting to see Marty McFly over and over and over again. Oh, sure. Yeah, and I think Michael J. Fox has been fighting that pretty much for the rest of his life. Like, I uh, love such Marty McFly. Film. I love that character. Yeah. I, I love those movies. They're perfect. I can't think of better time travel movies than Back to the Future, but his performance here is, I mean, he shows a lot more depth and a lot more talent than just being the Family Ties kid. Right, and he had throughout the eighties and nineties. Right, he had a lot of other yeah. starring roles that were were great. You know, beyond Back to the Future, it's just the unfortunate reality of being involved in, in quite legitimately one of the most successful franchises ever. Although it is worth noting that apparently he flubbed his lines constantly on set and called John Aston's judge character Doc constantly (laughs) (laughs) and they they had to reshoot a bunch of those lines so even he is is you know visited by the ghost of marty mcfly on on a regular basis um the only other common problem that i saw was again and this is a matter of taste but something that we've probably got to acknowledge with peter jackson and that is that the film is incredibly violent uh there are spikes of, of pretty horrific violence throughout the film uh, especially the director's cut has a few more more shots mm-hmm. in it. Uh, nothing crazy by modern standards. I mean, you know, the, there is a, a kill in the new Halloween involving you know a, a teenager and a, a spiked gate <laughs> that you know is 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 pretty brutal. You know, well, but, you know, in the in the days where we can have the Evil Dead remake, which is honestly one of the more violent films that was super successful for whatever reason. Um, Again, I feel like in 1996, this was, this was a lot, but now eh, (laughs) not so much. Yeah. Like I said, Um, but Jackson has a feel for visceral gore and, and pretty much has for the entirety of his career. And it's, it's very much on display here Uh, in, in, again, in Lord of the Rings on display king kong on display like he never really shies away from the more sort of disgusting and brutal effects involved in in showing violence that's why so much of the battle scenes in lord of the rings are iconic i mean they shaped Mm -hmm. how we approach filming those types of scenes or at least i think they did yeah and the thing with jackson that i think he he generally does well and why he can get away with that when he needs to is because there is a, a layer of fantasy there, right? Like if you choose to engage with him. But that's that's not easy for everybody. Some people are just sort of against gore. So those are the, the common issues, you know, the things that we'll, we'll try and discuss as we go through the film. But, um, you know, this is, this is definitely a film where where you can see the progression of Peter Jackson as a confident filmmaker. Um, and and I and ultimately it's it's a confident film, right? There's not really much here that reeks of a director who's struggling to find his voice. Uh, quite the opposite. This feels like a very distinctive movie. Um, I guess the other thing to note before we get into it is that the soundtrack to this film was composed by Danny Elfman. And it's fun. And it, and it is very good. It it is very typical of Danny Elfman's, you know, sort of nineties film score output. Um, you know, it has 
a lot of his hallmark, na 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 na. You know that. Kind very, of, it reminded me a lot of Beetlejuice. You know, it's it's very Beetlejuicey. There's a little bit of Edward Scissorhands in there from time to time. Um, you know, but it it definitely has that quality, and it gives it a very. I don't want to say Tim Burton esque because that's frankly insulting to Peter Jackson, <laughs> but. Um, oh, it wasn't at this point. <laughs> at, not at this point. No, at this point, it definitely was was to its it's <laughs> definitely to its advantage. But um, it, it does give the film a sort of you know interesting quality as as the music gets in. It's, I wouldn't say it's an overwhelming score, but it definitely has moments of you know sort of cool, punctuated Danny Elfman moments. Um, and again, it gives the film an air of legitimacy that, you know, in your first big swing out of the studio gate, not a lot of people are going to get, which is kind of cool. Uh, all right, so I guess let's let's dig into our, our debrief of the Frighteners again. the The film itself is a, a fun sort of uh, romp through a, a sort of almost a serial killer story, but with this really cool edge to it. Um, so we, we open with a cool crane shot, right? Which, again, it's it's kind of indicative of, of Jackson's later work. A lot of big, sweeping camera moves that then take us into very small, very focused camera moves. Um, but the movie really opens with a, a fairly nice, long take, really. Um, you know, it's it's fairly fairly typical in Hollywood for a director getting their first... <laughs> getting their first chunk of budget to kind of show off in this way. But, um, you know, Jackson kind of pushes in through a window on this very old house and then down through a hole in the floorboards and then down, you know, to, uh, well, D Wallace, right? I mean, that's one of the coolest things about this movie. Um, you know, eighties mom, D Wallace, the mom in ET, uh, and I, an, an iconic actress from, you know, um, basically all of our childhoods at this point, uh, being chased by an entity uh, through her home, right? And so, as we mentioned, this was a, a fairly important film for special effects technology. And here it's very much on display. We have a, a fairly typical arrangement of shots, you know, the standard stuff getting pulled off of shelves and you know, doors getting ripped open apropos of nothing, but this time we actually kind of see the specter, right? Chasing her through all of the surfaces of the home, uh, you know, deforming in the walls, following her up the carpet steps uh, is uh, a figure, some kind of shadowy, you know, hooded figure. And what do you think of these special effects at this point, right? Because this is 25 years ago now. Uh, this is very, very early in CG. Um, Peter Jackson supervised the purchase like basically to do the special effects in this movie he started or at least solidified what we now call weta digital which is is now one of the biggest special effects houses in the world and he he bought something like 35 silicon graphics workstations uh which at the time were very expensive uh, like 30 25 to 30 grand each roughly to to do the special effects in this movie um, but what, how do you think this sequence of shots holds up? I think it's very dated now. 
Um, I remember thinking that a few of the effects looked a little unfinished um, when I saw the movie at the time. Um, and now I kind of, I'm pretty sure that some of them were not as polished as they could have been. Um, particularly, like, just some of the, the textures and, I mean, you know, this was a dark time for <laughs> computer graphics and movies. Right. Um, but I, I, I feel like some of them were a little underdone. Um, but overall, they're impressive. This was 1996. It's impressive that they did it at all. Um, but now I kind of wonder if they had had maybe just a little more time to polish, to work on them. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if you, for people who haven't seen it, um, the effect is what they're basically attempting to do is, you know, the, the Freddy Krueger head pushing out of the wall in Friday, or in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, that was done with, you know, an actor behind a, a wall covered in latex so they could sort of push their way into it and, and give that impression of a head and hands. That effect is being done in motion through CG, you know, in the walls. And and it's mostly, I mean, in terms of modern special effects, it's just texture warping. That's really all they're doing. Yeah. They're they're taking the texture on the wall and and stretching and warping and deforming that texture in a shape to give the appearance of a, a you know, a figure behind the the And wall there are some the places where that effect really does not work. And I kind of wish right. that they had used something else. Or if they had, like I said, had more time to make it look nicer. Because they have to rely on that particular effect a lot. Yes. It becomes the it becomes a typical way that we see um, this mysterious figure, right? And in 1996, that kind of deformation and warping was, was incredibly difficult. And... and uh, you know, and looked pretty cool, right? But now I, I think it is a bit dated. Uh, not enough to take me out of the experience, right? I mean, the opening of the film is really Dee Wallace being chased through her home and then her mother kind of shoots the carpet that the thing is in and then it escapes and we get our title, you know, it's, The Frighteners. It's fast enough and it's chaotic enough that you, you don't necessarily notice that the effects are a little cheesy. Right, and I, I think that's, again, a, a choice that they're making to keep it snappy, keep it punchy, don't give you enough time to focus, you know, and, and hopefully get bogged down in, in what looks real. Just kind of stay riding with it. Um, but so she gets caught. She's, you know, it's, there's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of, you know, what's happening, what's going on with me. And, and really then, you know, the plot kind of, I don't want to say kicks into high gear, but they basically start establishing very quickly that there are people who are dying um, they, they you know dying apropos of nothing or having these strange heart attacks, and and then you know we segue very quickly to a a burial right a, a person has died and they're being buried in the uh, the graveyard and and we're introduced to Frank Barrister who just nonchalantly and cavalierly walks his way to the funeral and starts distributing his business cards. Um, which, what's his title? Is it Paranormal? Yeah, it's um, uh, Frank Bannister, Paranormal... Oh, shoot, what does it say? Psychic um, Investigator. Psychic, psychic investigator. investigator. 
Right. Just just a generic, you know, psychic investigator. And he, he promptly gets gets thrown out, right? People kind of, you know, kick him out of the way. So we know he's got a reputation in the town, but I love that he just kind of hurls a stack of business cards at the people and one even gets kind of stuck on a dude's umbrella. You know, it's just it's it's great. Um but that scene, again, I mean, you know, in a less confident director, we might have had like a a long vocal exchange or a character like, what are you doing here, Frank? You know, like all of that kind of stuff. And and we really don't get any of it. Um, but we know very quickly this guy's on the outs. Uh, they, they, one of the cool things, they, they show his car, which is just this this piece of junk. I don't know. Is it supposed to be like an Edsel or Studebaker? Uh, I don't even know the brand, but, you know, he just drives it everywhere. You know, top speeds, hopping curbs, just just everything, and it's 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 great. But we established there's a lot of work being done here because what we find out very quickly is that Frank was in a serious car accident several years ago, and his wife died. Um, and I think it's Jackson, again, I think there was at one point in this film supposed to be a legitimate concern that Frank actually is a bad guy. I think they were they intended that to be a much more powerful reveal. Like we're not supposed to necessarily like him, we're not supposed to trust him or believe him because he's like this shyster. But maybe it's because of Michael J. Fox and and his likability and his ability to sort of pay off characters like this that I'm not sure that that ever worked or was going to work. Um, he he plays the kind of guy that you root for almost no matter what he's like even if he is kind of a a, a shitty person you just right, like even, michael j fox <laughs> right and because even michael j fox was or even marty mcfly was, was kind of a jerk right like he you know he was a nice guy and and you know obviously pretty good but he was a punk kid he was a punk kid you know he was, he was very high on himself and and you still grow to to sort of love Marty and and as he gets taken down a peg you, you acknowledge that that's necessary but you hope to see him rise again. Um, again, I find it hilarious that this movie tries to sell itself as being in the United States. <laughs> there is nothing about this movie that looks like the United States, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert in like what the U.S. looks like, but it doesn't look like this. At this uh, point, so, uh, the, the New Zealand film industry has made us so acutely aware of how beautiful and perfect New Zealand is right. that uh, we see it everywhere. We're like, that's just, not where we are. Come on. Just can't be confused. Um, but ultimately, as, as Frank is, is driving his way down the hill, he almost hits another car and ends up crashing into the yard of Ray. Um, Ray, oh, uh, Linsky. Right, like that's that's the great thing is Melanie Linsky's last name is the uh, main character, one of the main characters' names in this movie. But he crashes into his lawn and and takes out his his beautiful little garden gnomes, which drives him crazy. <laughs> and uh, Frank has has no end of glee in smashing them on his way out of the yard, but throws in one of his business cards and says that he'll he'll pay the damages. So we, we flash back to, you know, obviously the film opens with this, you know, sort of frightening moment as this woman's being chased through her home by the spirit. And um, we, we kind of cut back to that. And uh, Trini Alvarado, an actress we, you know, Love see a ton her. these days. 
uh, is she was in my favorite adaptation of Little Women. (laughs) Yes, um, that's probably the only thing I really knew her from uh, at this point. Um, She's done, you know, she's worked fairly steadily. She had a guest turn on Fringe, and you know, she's on Law and Order for a while. Um, you know, a few things here and there, but definitely, you know, has not had an extensive career post, you know, early 2000s. But she's really good in this, right? So she plays Dr. Lucy Linsky, and so she's headed to this house to check up on, you know, not her patient, it's another doctor, but um, Dee Wallace's character, who was uh, injured in, in what took place the night And everything before. is very suspicious when she gets there. Right, and that's one thing I think is pretty good, is that Jackson, pretty much throughout this entire first chunk of the movie, sort of keeps us on our back foot. We we never really fully know what's going on. It always feels like there's more happening around us, right? There's There's pieces to this puzzle that we don't have, and it's... It's not unsettling, it's not to the point that I feel like it's frustrating, but there are just always these elements hanging out there that enhance our our suspicion, they enhance our our disbelief of the situation. And I think that in a film like this, that works very well, because it's dealing with the paranormal, it's dealing with the supernatural, who, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And so the Patricia, we find out, Dee Wallace's character, who lives with her mother, and her mother is, is obviously not a nice person <laughs> by any stretch. Um, you know, she has, it's hard to describe the, the hair dudes, the, the middle part, you know, but it, I mean, she looks like a demon, right? She, it's kind of the same haircut as Dracula in the Bram Stoker Dracula a little bit. Uh, adaptation from Coppola, right? It's everything is wrong. Everything seems off. And Dr. Linsky is asked to leave. Then we get... Our, our introduction to the tragedy that befell this town at some point in the past um, and why Patricia is locked up with her mother in her home. Um, and here's where, where Abusey enters the scene. Woohoo! Uh, or, or at least his teeth. My favorite Busey. <laughs> so in, in some simulated newsreel footage that once again looks very not in America we discover that uh, in the past, you know, 30 years before or, or something, in Fairfield at their, their, I guess it was at their hospital, I guess it's just a hospital, it's not an insane asylum or anything, but at their hospital, one of the orderlies went crazy and he murdered 12 people and, and claimed that he was trying to, um, I guess, beat another serial killer's record, right? Uh, Charles Starkweather had killed 11, he was killing 12, but implicated in that was Patricia, right? Dee Wallace's character as a young girl. And that she was uh, somehow involved in the killings. But eventually exonerated of the killings themselves. She, she was, was a, under an accessory. age. She was, right. uh, she was young enough that they could, not, um, they could not give her the death penalty. Right. And so she got this adjusted um, sentence. Whereas Johnny Bartlett, Jake Busey, uh, and his teeth were were electrocuted for his crimes and, and he got the chair so we find out this is this is lucy watching some kind of you know true crime tape um 
uh, I like this scene. It's it's very domestic. It's it's very quiet. She's in bed watching this. Her husband is on his his cardio row machine on the floor and absolutely not at all interested. You get a lot of characterization and and you know relationship building between those two, which is good uh considering what happens quickly after this. <laughs> right. Um I will say the first time I saw this, I, I was expecting the husband to be a much larger part of this story. Um, and the fact that he isn't is great. It's actually really good. But I also love... I love the decoration of their house. Because it's so strange. And I have to believe that most of the strangeness is because of this guy. Uh, right, like he's got a lawn ornament of, he's got a lawn or ornament of Elvis, in their bedroom, which um, you know it's a bold choice. That actor portrayed Elvis in Forrest Gump. That's right. <laughs> um, which is is, you know, again, it could just be a little Zemeckis nod. That's probably what it is. Well, there's also but, on the when she's watching the documentary, there's a copy of Heavenly Creatures on the TV stand. Yes, yes. Did you see um, that? <laughs> nice. Peter Jackson loves yeah. his references. I he mean, does. He's in he, all of his movies. and Right, yeah. He, he understands the artifice of film, and he's more than willing to, to play with that. But yeah, I mean, she's watching a documentary about serial killers, so it makes sense that she would have picked up a copy of Heavenly Creatures as well. Um, but all of this little, you know, cute... <laughs> You know, character development between uh, husband and wife is interrupted by a haunting. And their, you know, their house just starts going crazy. Bed gets lifted up and spun around. <laughs> a uh, uncooked turkey walks its way down their hallway in shadow, right? And so here we start to understand uh, the scam, right? Frank's scam specifically, because... All of a sudden, they find one of Frank's cards, and they call him to, to deal with the problem. A lot of fun effects here, you know, a lot of practical stuff, a little bit of CG stuff as well. But, you know, this is part of, of what Jackson is really good at, I think, and, and why he, he blends these worlds so well. So they call Frank, and, and he arrives. Uh, I absolutely adore that he just takes out another chunk of the fence as he arrives and another stand of gnomes. Um, you know, so we, again, I, I don't know if we're supposed to like Michael J. Fox at this character, at this point in the film, but uh, you kind of can't help it. So the crazy thing is he arrives and the ghosts have sort of stopped their haunting, right? So he's expecting them to still be doing things and they're not. And so he's he's frustrated and upset uh, because they didn't execute the plan, right? Um, but he has a contraption, right? As all good psychic investigators must have. Uh, any any time spent sort of with people who do paranormal, you know, your your Zach Baggins of the world and ghost adventures or ghost hunters, whatever that show is, they've always got their equipment. I like so. the pistol filled with holy water. Yeah, that's a good that's a good reveal. He pulls the the pistol out of his pocket, and they freak. He's like, "It's full." Um, but he negotiates the terms, right? And they just so happen to cover the damages that he would have had to pay on the fence 
earlier that day, much to the husband's chagrin, uh, to Roy Linsky's chagrin. But so he runs his cleansing routine. Uh, of course, it is successful. He winds up with a, a tiny baggie, right? Just a little baggie full of ghosts um, that he's able to put down the disposal and take care of them. Uh, so this, this I think, is, is lots of fun, right? This is where... This is we where if it, if it was a if this was a Tales from the Crypt episode, this is where the turn would happen, and it's exactly yeah. when the turn would happen. This is exactly when the turn happens, right? This is all in good fun. It's a little bit goofy, a little bit scary, but ha ha ha! See, no problems. Everything's fine. But as he's leaving, on Roy's head is a number, right? Uh, something cut into his forehead with, uh, you know, some kind of light pouring out of it that apparently only Frank can see. And here's where the, the plot really sort of kicks into high gear, right? So we're about 20 minutes into the movie. Um, and then as, as a tag on the scene, you know, the, the spirit force that was pushing out of the wall shows up in the Linsky home. Um, so a, a, a great little scene tells us a lot about Frank as a character very, very quickly. Um, he's, he's a bit of a shyster, a bit of a huckster, but, you know, at the same time does have some kind of connection to what's going on here. Um, and so the next sequence is he arrives back at home, at his half-finished home. We get introduced to how he's able to pull all this off, which is basically because of his ghost friends. And again, any fan of Lord of the Rings is going to recognize the effects on display here mm -hmm. uh, because they are absolutely the effects that are used for the ghost army at the, yep. end, of, uh, at the end of Return of the King. Uh, it's pretty much the, the precise technology. Um, so all of these uh, ghost characters are, are filmed as separate elements, but they have had transparency applied to them. They have, um, again, there's a lot of warping. They can walk through things, move through things. Their makeup and costuming is also fantastic because they're all appearing as they did when they died. So their look is very um, heavily stylized for each ghost. I don't know. I I kind of love the ghosts in this. I think they're they're probably my favorite, you know, secondary characters. They're definitely what provide uh the bulk of the the humor in the story. Uh because the ghosts are are set upon, right? They feel like they kind of know that that they're being taken advantage of and it seems more like they're doing it just cuz they don't really have anything better to do. Uh, and Frank, as a result, gives them, you know, attention and time and a place to stay that isn't the graveyard. And uh, so they've kind of got this this arrangement to make all of this work. Um, and so it is these ghosts that he dispatches to the various people to cause the hauntings and then, you know, the need for him to arrive. Uh, the ghosts, the, the two primary ghosts that we meet at this point are played by Chi McBride, um, who's done a lot of stuff. Um, I know him from Pushing Daisies, which came out a few years after this. Uh, great 
television show starring Lee Pace, uh, the other ghost who seems to be some sort of nerdy college kid from the 50s is um John Fife, right? Uh yeah, J- Jim Jim Fife, I think. Jim. Um <coughs> who who didn't act a ton after this. Uh didn't act a ton after this has actually been like a, a school headmaster or something <laughs> for several years. Uh so, you know, not necessarily heavy into acting anymore, but um they they do a great job. They're their makeup, you know, they, they obviously have, you know, they're, they're, they don't look perfect, right? They're oozing. They've got, you know, maybe some blood seeping. Uh, Fife's character in particular, he's got a lot of, like, blood coming from his nose. Um, uh, isn't it like... Um, it's supposed to be like ectoplasm, ectoplasm stuff yeah, as well. That they're, yeah. like, leaking. Because all the ghosts sort of look like that. <laughs> right, and they can leave residue. You know, they, they interact with surfaces and objects. They're not completely devoid of, of body, if you want to call it that. You know, which is how they're able to, to interact with the world and manipulate objects, and, and Frank understands this, and that's that's kind of what they do together. Um, again, a ton of special effects expertise on display. At one point, uh, Chi McBride walks into a light bulb, and the light bulb sort of illuminates the inside surface of his head, yeah. And and it coincides with him being very angry and like his head gets set on fire because he's so upset. Um, you know, at the time, really, really interesting stuff. I mean, you look at it now and how special effects are done and it's very basic things. It's, it's literally stuff that there are, you know, After Effects plugins to do, right? Things that they were pioneering and having to do manually. Now you can just say, oh, just, just do that and it'll just make it happen. Um, <laughs> so some very cool you know, sort of early special effects trend setting going on here. Um, but the the next sequence just is really all about establishing Frank and his relationship to these ghost characters, right? They have this sort of contentious, you know, frat buddy kind of relationship where, you know, the ghosts are trying to get a little bit more out of him trying to get him to give him a little bit more respect, and Frank is, is sort of not really having it uh, most of the time. But the main bit of character building that we get is Frank's unfinished home. Uh, so he lives in this half-finished, what I guess really at one point probably would have been a mansion, um, but it's it's incomplete. And, and in disrepair. Like, it's not maintained right. either. Yeah, he he takes a shower in basically like a plastic tent, um, and you know the walls are unfinished. There are no windows. It's all open air. He has to wear a coat inside. It's it's just it's a really interesting setup, and I think that it it a from being a visually interesting set, like really exciting to to look at, and you know sort of unexpected. It also does a lot to establish him as a character and you know what he's willing to live with. But it also becomes an important component of his goals, right? He's trying to earn enough money to to finish this house. And we don't really know the circumstances behind why he hasn't been able to, at least not yet. And, you know, we get a couple more cool effects. The, he says that because the ghosts are always around, there's like flies everywhere and he has to put up with that. And then really we get... Interest, uh, we get introduced to the, the last ghost in his arsenal, if you want to call it that. And that is the judge, played by the always wonderful 
John Aston. Uh, it is entirely possible, and I would say even probable, that the reason that Sean Aston is Samwise Gamgee is because Peter Jackson developed a relationship with John Aston in this film. Uh, so again, you can see the sort of Lord of the Rings components all coming to bear uh, pretty easily uh, after the Frighteners. But so uh, John Aston plays the judge. A, an apparently ancient ghost who's been on Earth since the, the I guess, the, the Old West, and is, is literally falling apart. So here we get a really great marriage of practical special effects, because the judge's practical special effects are fantastic. He's got this sort of loose-hanging jaw that is, uh, <clears throat> you know, sort of tied in, where John Aston can still speak, and and talk through it, and then we get a lot of uh, digital replacement. We see that he doesn't really have a midsection. It's just sort of a ribcage and spine, which is really cool. And, you know, it, it, again, it's it's exactly the same effect that he uses, again, in, in Lord of the Rings in a couple of spots. And it just it looks re really good. This stuff looks fantastic it, and it really still does. looks fantastic. It's a very simple effect, and I think that that simplicity really, really helps it, you know, sort of remain relevant. Because it's just an actor, right? It's still an actor doing a performance and then just having this effect applied to that performance. So, you know, this I think is really striking looking, very interesting. Still a lot of complex stuff here. It's not, it's not simple in its execution, but it's simple in its effect. And as a result, man, it just holds up. Um, but then, well, well I, I guess the, the other thing, <clears throat> we see that the ghosts work with Frank to sort of develop new ways to scare. And we basically get one of the Nazgul. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's it's the exact same sort of, like, partially puppeted huge hooded figure that that we would see you know sort of executed as a Nazgul I think if this movie had come out Lord after the, the Lord of the Rings it it would have been a big hit with Lord of the Rings fans <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah you can see a lot of the work being done here uh, to, to sort of establish technique so uh, the mail comes, and that's where we find out that he's he's about to lose his house. He needs a bunch of money very, very quickly, or else he is going to, to lose his home. We don't know why he cares so much, given its state of disrepair, but we know that he wants. So this was one thing about the plot that I... I it could have gone. Because it seemed, the first time I watched this, it seemed like this was going to be our driving force. Okay, he needs a whole bunch of money. So he's going to have to go and start scaring a whole bunch of people to generate as much money as he can as quickly as he can. And I really thought that that was going to be sort of the driving plot element of the film. And that is 100% not where it goes at all. We really get, what, one sequence where they're trying to scare some rich family by having their babies run around mm -hmm. the house. And, and then really nothing much else. Uh, so that was one thing that I was like, well, why, why spend so much time on, on how much money he needs within X amount of time? Um, when we get so derailed from that and we never really come back to it. Um, at the end of the film, the house gets demolished, 
right? I mean, it gets torn down exactly as he says he doesn't want to see happen. So it's not that it's bad that we don't go anywhere with it, but I think it's something that if, if it was going to be just this, him letting go of the house is the sign that he's moving on. I, I think we could have, you know, sort of developed that a little bit more in the movie and, and maybe in a different version of the film or a longer version of the film. That was the plan. Either know. that or, or maybe, I don't know, remove the, the plot twist about needing the money or wanting to finish the house or, and, and just sort of make it a point of stagnation. It's not finished because his life just sort of was put on pause um, right. And, yeah, that's definitely the metaphor that we're playing with here. But it's like and they think, added something extra to it, and it didn't need that. <laughs> right. Like, I, I think it was more just I was expecting that to be a more vital component to, you know, because when you establish a deadline like that, a timeline, where you say, I've got, you know, seven days to do a thing, then usually that if you present that information to the audience, that's the information that you're going to like sort of use as the foundational component of here's where we need to go. And again, we, we do a little bit, but it, it gets so backgrounded so quickly that, you know, it's kind of like, well, why even bother, you know, just let us know that the house is in foreclosure and, and, you know, he's probably going to lose it unless something massive changes or happens in, in you know, the near future. But it is. It's definitely something that was meant to be sort of a metaphor for the ramshackle nature of his own life at this point. You know, if if the car and the bad coat and everything else wasn't enough evidence for how horrifically bad this guy's life is, uh, you know, the house can stand as that, too. Um, a lot of uh, interesting driving sequences and, and various things going on, but... You know, Frank's trying to drum up money, so he's he's pretty much, you know, I, I guess we would normally call it ambulance chasing, but in this case, he's hearse chasing to try and, and you know, get people who are, are afraid of, of the undead roaming free. Um, but really, that just, you know, sort of all leads to him trying to, to exercise these houses using his typical shtick and not really able to get away with it. Mostly because the newspaper in town has kind of picked up on what he's trying to do, and they keep and they've pretty much you know sort of revealed him to be a a con man. So now he he's lost all of his ability to get money. That's when we get kind of introduced to the uh, the newspaper editor, right? Is it Magda? Is that mm -hmm. it? Magda. And it's not that she's got a vendetta against him, but she definitely feels like he is... Uh, she can see him for what he is. Right. You know, she can see through uh, what he's got. She doesn't know the full extent of the story, you know, his experiences and, and the abilities that he has, but she knows what he's attempting to do. <clears throat> but the next big reveal is, is that uh, Ron Linsky is dead, right? Uh, the number on his forehead was a, a precursor to his end. And, you know, they, they, they literally run into each other, right? The guy, even though he's dead, is still jogging, which is, is a beautiful moment. Uh, you know, a, a health nut who can't even stop being healthy even though his body is physically dead, right? Like, oh, I don't have a body anymore, but I still better go for yeah, that. Yeah, at one point he's like, I gotta get some vitamins in me. <laughs> 
Right? He's like, you don't need vitamins, dude. You're dead, right? There's no nothing left to add vitamins to, um, which I think is is fun. You know, it's it's a, a character that that doesn't understand that they're dead and that they've transitioned. Um, you know, they just can't grasp it, which is kind of an interesting character. So Frank, unfortunately, has to kind of like lead him through that experience, which is is great. Um, and uh, they go to his funeral, and you know. Then we get probably one of the most interesting, I don't want to call it like the film's tour de force, because there's a lot of really good moments in this movie, but Frank's kind of walk through the graveyard is so good. Uh, just from a special effects standpoint, you've got dozens of ghosts walking around, poking up out of their graves. You've got Arlie Ermy doing his thing. He is uh, such a treasure. Yeah, well, apparently it wasn't even supposed to be him. It was supposed to be someone, something else, and... They they seized on a, you know somebody like him being in charge, and, and then eventually it boiled down to well, can't we just get him? Mm-hmm. And and of course he was like sure, and he came in and, and he did his his drill sergeant shtick that you know he was so well known for. He's the the field marshal of the cemetery, and he hates Frank, uh, of course, because Frank's a, a disruptive influence to his peaceful and nice cemetery right um but again a lot of really cool special effects work he kind of walks through the ground and sort of emerges from it in interesting ways it's it's cool you know but here's where i think we can probably you know the tonal swing that people were complaining about because we go from the incredibly comedic you know arlie ermy with a bunch of guns and punching people to you know an, an actual funeral right and the guy is is watching uh you know the guy's watching his own funeral but we get the def- the distinct impression or at least i did i don't know maybe you feel the same way that you know people are kind of lying through teeth because <laughs> this guy was really a jerk but well i love that you know, nobody's that, willing to say it that lucy is not even crying she's just kind of She's kind of going through the motions of crying, but she's not even especially sad that he's dead. <laughs> yeah, that's um, one thing about the movie that is is a significant issue is that it, it is obvious that Lucy is being positioned as the love interest of the film, but the the love interest has has lost their husband within a couple of days of the events of the film taking place. And, I mean, they uh, do go through some motions to explain, as the the film progresses from here, that their marriage was not good. Right. But even still, it's it's funny. It makes me laugh anyway. <laughs> She's not even bothered that he's dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, it, it's rare to see a film handle a marriage relationship so cavalierly, but it's kind of refreshing at the same time. It's kind of like, oh, you know, it's 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 good to see somebody kind of look at that and say, well, but the relationship was garbage, so who cares, <laughs> you know? Because um, what is it in the on the bed? It's their anniversary, and he talks about going, taking her to Excalibur or something, <laughs> which I, I presume is supposed to be like a medieval times kind <laughs> of kind of restaurant. He's pretty terrible. Know. Yeah, I mean, he's... <laughs> immediately established as dismissive and terrible and, and a jerk. Um, so again, even though Frank is the one whose position is kind of morally ambiguous, we're, it's so much easier to hate him 
and I, I, I love it. Um, but uh, I really love that he falls into his own grave and winds up staring his own dead body in the face. The delivery just, of that dialogue when uh, he's he's weeping and then, oh, shit. <laughs> That's so perfect. It's, yeah, it, it's, oh, man. Uh, just perfectly executed. Tons and tons of fun. Uh, you know, you just... You, it's hard to not love it, right? You just kind of know that it's it's great. Um, and then probably one of the most underrated, one of the most underrated character actors in all of Hollywood, uh, Mr. Troy Evans, uh, plays the sheriff, uh, or is he a deputy? I don't remember. He's a sheriff. He's a sheriff. Sheriff Sheriff Perry is his name. Um, and so he's not in the film a ton. He only gets a couple of scenes, but he's the one that finally tells Frank about the murders that uh, it almost seems like their hearts were crushed inside their chest. The pathology can't reveal what killed them. And, and just his intensity, he has a great tag at the very end of the movie as well, um, where he, he wants to work with Frank, you know, sort of become a dynamic duo together. That's, you know, just wonderful. But uh, he's he's awesome. I love Troy Evans. You know, he's in a bunch of stuff that I really liked. A lot of people probably know him from Ace Ventura, where he played Roger Pitt actor for the Miami Dolphins, and you know he's in Under Siege and and, and uh, you know a bunch he's in of everything. Really, yeah, he's just all over the place, and uh, you know I just I love seeing him, and, and he's great in this too. And so. Uh, Lucy and Frank are thrown together because, you know, Frank says that you know, he kind of reveals what he's capable of doing and then tells Lucy that, that he can still communicate with her husband. And she is not a skeptic. I I was sort of impressed yeah. that it didn't immediately go the skeptic route that she needs convincing. She's actually on board with the ghost thing right away. Yeah, she, for being a, a medical professional... Um, she's extremely open. And again, I don't know if this is supposed to be because she's, you know, she is dealing with her grief in, in some ways that perhaps that's where this is coming from. But, you know, then we get this, yeah, I love the way that Jackson approaches scene setups, right? Because this could have been handled in a bunch of different ways. But in essence, what we get is a romantic dinner between Michael J. Fox and Trini Alvarado, uh, Dr. Lucy and Frank Barrister. And and her husband is just right there, fly on the wall style, <laughs> right? Feeling like he's a member of what's going on, that he's still somehow involved in the situation. And Frank is unfortunately forced to, 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 you know, basically sort of provide the, be the go between, between him and his wife. And, and I love that even though he's dead, even though he has absolutely no way to interact with his wife, he still thinks that she owes him her attention and, and her, her devotion. And it's the a, fact that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it, it just, and the fact that she doesn't, that she doesn't feel for him in that way anymore. Um, he he just can't handle it, and I, I love it. It's just such a great setup. 
I think I think it's a nice joke on movies like Ghost, you know, where there's mm-hmm. there's this yeah. deep and abiding love that transcends, you know, the afterlife, and then you meet these two, and that is clearly not the case. Right. I love how the whole conversation is built up, and he's like expecting it to be this super romantic thing, and her real legitimate question, the only question that she needs answered from beyond the grave <laughs> is where is my $16,000 that you were going to invest for me? Like that is what she needs to know because it's gone. And as soon as she pull, she pops that cork, he just freaks out. He's like, Oh shit. Oh shit. Um, just tell her that, you know, I lost it on a bad investment, but it's okay. I'm going to get it back. And then we watch the actual disintegration of their relationship, which, you know, it, we didn't get to see while they were alive, right? But now we get to see it in death, um, which again is is just a fantastic and and wonderful little thing because now she's free, right? From from an audience standpoint, she's no longer attached, which she wasn't to begin with, but now it's legitimately broken, right? And we don't want her to be attached. Like at this point, we're happy that he turned out to be a jerk, right? It's confirmation of what we already sort of knew and what we already hoped. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the plot reintrudes. He goes to the bathroom. Uh, he gets a little bit of stuff spilt on him. And he sees another guy with a number card in his head, just like the husband. Um, so he's in the bathroom. He's cleaning himself up. And the figure appears, uh, the shadow in the wall. And so here we we can start making the connection between, you know, the shadow in the wall and then the deaths. But we get another fantastically humorous scene as Michael J. Fox just begins opening stall doors apropos. And crawling around on the bathroom floor. Crawling around on the floor while this guy's taking a whiz. He has no no idea what's happening. Um you know, again, I, I love this type of stuff. And Jackson is really good at these kinds of scenes of having one character who is is unnerved by what's going on, but we, the audience, and then the character in the know, we feel safe and secure in what's happening. And he uses all of those wonderful wide-angle lenses to do his close-ups of the actors, and it gives it this kind of nice claustrophobic feel whenever, you know, the camera is on them. Um, And this is one of the scenes where you really start to see that. Right. Yeah. You, it, you know, Jackson's ability to, to shoot a compelling scene is, is never in question. Um, but really with this guy, he, he gets killed. We get a really nice full reveal of the, the shadow in the wall that it's sort of a grim reaper figure. Um, and that special effect too is, is a bit rough. He sort of emerges from the mirror and the mirror shimmers and, and, you know, sort of deforms and comes out of it. Uh, reaches inside the the chest of the other guy in the bathroom and, and kills him, presumably. But really, here's where we're introduced to the concept of the the tunnel of light, right? Frank, I think, had mentioned it earlier. You know, you didn't go to your you didn't go to the tunnel of light. That's why you're stuck here. You know, you'll get another chance or, or something along those lines. But we see that guy uh, ascend. You know, he says, "Hey, mom," and and kind of goes up into the light. But then Frank just, you know, follows the spirit, right? He, he wants to know what's going on. Um, but the problem is that he was seen coming out of the bathroom before the body was found. 
So he's immediately a, a person of suspicion. But it's worth noting here that we get, <laughs> we get, um, you know, so Frank is chasing the demon. Um, Lucy's taken in to uh, the police station to give a statement because she was there and, and things were happening. Uh, Melanie Linsky makes her, you know, guest cameo as one of the sheriff's deputies. One of the other sheriff's deputies is Dozer from, from the, Matrix. the Matrix. I was so happy to see him. Mm-hmm. I just didn't. I didn't realize that he was in this until I watched it again. Yeah, he shows up a couple of times uh, as one of the deputies. Uh, you know, so again, another you know sort of New Zealand and Australian actor uh, getting to to be involved, which is really cool. Uh, and then we get the ominous line: "Bring him in," right? Um, and, and that leads us to our, our next, oh, finally. our next <laughs> character, you know, we're 50 minutes in the movie, still meeting new characters, always fun. Um, we do get a, a lovely chase between, you know, Frank, the ghosts and, you know, the, the Grim Reaper figure, uh, a couple of actually pretty solid effects. The Grim Reaper, there's that one shot where the Grim Reaper like turns and looks at them in the car and then kind of goes through them. And there's a little bit of, you know, photography going on there. He's kind of got like a, you know, like a skull face. And, and that stuff actually looks pretty good. Um, you know, the the main problems are like the full, the full CG figures. Yeah. Causing issues from time to time. But so unfortunately, Frank has become a, a, you know, a person of suspicion, right? Being in the area where someone has died. And and having the reputation that Frank does, it, it he, people are interested. So then we are introduced to our, our final piece of this puzzle, and that is the inimitable and incredible Jeffrey Combs. Ah, oh, that man and, look, and this character just chef's kiss, so perfect. Yeah, it's it's so good. Um, so he's Milton Dammers, uh, an FBI agent who works with the occult with supernatural uh forces you know does not believe in them but but chase is, is familiar so with chasing down yeah so he says but is familiar with chasing down people who are involved in such things and man we just got to talk about his costume design because he's got the hitler haircut mm-hmm. right the the hitler cut the the comb over that's, that's very carefully cut He's um, either wearing the best contacts or they put something or they put drops in to dilate his pupils because they're out of control. I think they are all black contacts. Uh, contacts. You can see a little bit of his eye color mm-hmm. on the edge. Like it's so well done because it really looks like he's been doing drugs. <laughs> yeah, it's just he's wide eyed. Um, but so he's this FBI agent. And, you know, if you if you talk about establishing a character by quirk. He's he's the classic character by Quirk. In a lot of ways, he's playing a riff on his character from Reanimator. Uh, just this highly intelligent, highly confident, but incredibly goofy uh, sort of figure, um, but who apparently has a significant problem when when women specifically <laughs> are mean to him. It makes him like violently ill. When women yell at him, he becomes violently ill. So we get all of these great shots. You know, one of the funniest things you can do in in being funny with film is how characters enter and exit frame. And we get so many shots of him, like, peeking around doorways, 
um, you know, just making slight eye contact and then popping back out of camera. It, it's he is so a great. scenery chewer in this. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, he every scene that he's in, which frankly he's not in as many scenes as he probably should be. Um, but but he dominates the screen as Jeffrey Combs tends to do. He's mm-hmm. an incredibly powerful character actor. Um, you know, if you don't know who Jeffrey Combs is, obviously Reanimator is is where he sort of made his bones, but. <clears throat> He's been around for a very long time. He was he was big in all of the Stuart Gordon H.P. Lovecraft films right, from beyond, you know, everything. But um, he is the one that is tasked with providing us with our background on on Frank, and and ultimately that that Frank and his wife were were having problems, having issues, having disagreements. Um, and because and, he is such a weird character, you're not entirely sure if you believe the accuracy of his details on Frank, which I really Sure. Like. Yeah, he seems very precise, he seems very knowledgeable, but he also has a very specific sort of viewpoint on the situation. He believes that, you know, Barrister's insistence upon you know, being involved in the paranormal is all a cover, it's all a dodge. Um, but he establishes a couple of key pieces of information that... Barrister and his wife left on a drive in their car after having an argument, and he had supposedly been drinking, that the uh, razor knife in his toolbox had disappeared and um, could have been involved, and that while traveling down Holloway Road, they were in a wreck that uh, apparently involved the death of his wife. <coughs> and And, you know... So it's a, a bit of, of backstory, mostly to set up some things that become more relevant at the end of the film. But Combs is just all over it. I mean, it's it's pretty much just a long stream of consciousness rant. And, and it's so stream of consciousness <clears throat> that he keeps turning back and adding things as he's walking away. Right. He thinks that he's forgotten, right? <laughs> um, and I love that, that both Lucy and uh, the sheriff are just sitting, just watching, not responding, you know, not even in a lot of ways reacting. But it's just really also the first time where we get that uh, his wife had a number carved into her head. Um, and and that's, you know, that's what Frank has been, been seeing. Um, you know, so the, the connection to the razor knife, the knives and the, 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 the numbers in the forehead, you know, now we're getting sort of the idea of, of the plot, but it's, it's still very loose, right? We've, we're getting a lot of little pieces of information, but we don't have any sort of overall idea of, of how they all connect together yet. <clears throat> but we do have the dark figure, uh, the ghosts seem, you know, fairly confident that he's, you know, heavily involved in what's going on. But even the ghosts are afraid of him, which I think is kind of interesting, right? Like I, I like that even our, our ghost figures are struggling to contemplate what all of this means. <clears throat> and then they actually see like a beam of light from heaven come down on the local uh, museum, which I thought was kind of interesting. I didn't realize it was an externally visible phenomenon, but you know, here we are. <laughs> But that draws Frank in, and uh, of course there's a, another you know, person who has died 
seemingly at the the hands of the ghost, and it was the it was the reporter, right? Like the one that reported on him at the beginning, and he's marked with uh, thirty nine. Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah, so it was the one that saw him at the uh, the thing in the beginning. So the the ghost is is killing people, and that was another question I had too. So are they? You know, our our main villains who haven't been revealed yet. I, I guess we can we'll go ahead and spoil it if we want to call it a spoiler for a twenty five year old film. Um, but uh, D. Wallace, uh, her character Patricia, actually was heavily involved in the killings at the hospital years earlier with Johnny Bartlett, Jake Busey, and um. They have have continued killing Johnny Bartlett, being in his ghost form, and Patricia, you know, sort of aiding and abetting him throughout this time period. And the numbers on the foreheads are the are the total number of kills that they've gotten since they stopped. And so Frank's wife was the first of their killings to resume. You know, after Patricia was released from prison to her her new situation, and after Johnny. Uh, was able to escape uh, from the grave. And so it's... One question I had is, were they targeting people associated with Frank in in one way or another so that they could hang it on him? Was that always their goal? I don't... What do you think? I don't know. I didn't get that impression. I always... Yeah. It always seemed like a crime of opportunity, but it's very bizarre that it would be an opportunity at all. Right. I mean, some of the people seem random, but all of these people, you know, that's the reporter that wrote the story that exposed Frank as a fraud. You know, then the, the editor was the one who published it. So, you know, then, of course, Frank's wife being number 13, you know, there's been a string of killings since her that obviously Frank didn't have any you know, direct relevance to until we get back to the Linskys. But it just seemed like, again, maybe this was a plot thread, like the ghosts had, or the ghost and, and Patricia had decided to sort of hang it all on this guy's head so they could get away with it clean. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't come to anything in the movie, but I was just curious because it does seem like, you know, as we, we sort of put Frank in peril, you know, it, it almost seems purposeful that they, they'd made that decision. But, um, um, but so, uh, the judge shows up, you know, John Aston just having a great time in his weird makeup, uh, and scares the ghost away and then, uh, proceeds to, uh, have an, uh, interaction with, uh, a female Bangs mummy, the mummy at the museum. That's good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It says she's got great teeth and then jumps inside the sarcophagus and, yeah. Goes to town. Um, it manages but, to still be humorous and charming somehow. Right. Somehow. Yeah. Even in 2020, the joke has aged fairly well. It's funny. Yeah. It's it's not bad. It's it's a little funny. I, I you know when his his butt like pops out of the sarcophagus and and he he's obviously doing the deed. It's uh, it's still a bit ridiculous. I do love that the deputies are completely willing to absolutely obliterate all of these. <laughs> All of these precious <laughs> artifacts with bullets. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they shoot the mummy and all this stuff. 
you know, as the, the ghosts are animating him, <laughs> Chimi Pride gets a couple of great lines. And she was so young and beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all these things. But, uh, you know, it's it's another great sort of blending of practical and special effects. You know, something that Peter Jackson, again, would, would sort of perfect with Lord of the Rings. And, uh, but ultimately it's, it's all for naught. He, uh, ends up kidnapping the editor to try and save her life, crashes his car in a, in a way not dissimilar to what happened with him and his wife. And then she too is killed and he is, is blamed for it. Um, I, I love, again, Jeffrey Combs just gets to eat all the scenery in this movie and it's great because he's, he's saying, oh, Bannister is on the run. We'll never find him. He's, He's too good, you know. He's so resourceful. We'll never be able to capture him. And the entire time he's giving this speech, you know, Michael J. Fox is just wandering into the police station <laughs> in the background. Um, you know, it's it's a, a really great comedic, you know, sort of undercutting moment. You know, uh, we'll never be able to find him. He's too good. He's too powerful. He's too too intelligent. And and then he just walks in behind him. He's like, hey, what's going on, guys? Um, and so he reveals that Magda is dead and, and that, you know, he, he kind of understands why they would think it's him and, and tries to explain that it wasn't. And so here's where, where Milton lays out his theory that Frank is actually behind all of these murders, right? So again, this is why I, I kind of wonder if, if this wasn't originally like their, you know, their plan. To, to hang all of this on Frank, to build their additional killing spree is in a way that, that they could get away with it by blaming him. But um, it, it ultimately doesn't really matter. But but uh, this is, is Combs' belief that, that Barrister is, is the guy, right? He's the one that has, has caused all this. And nobody really believes it, but you know, he absolutely does. So, I think we get one of the best lines in this movie because the the sheriff says, like, you know, he's my prisoner. You don't get to boss him around. You don't get to tell him what to do. And then he pulls out his badge and says, by the power vested in me, by the president (laughs) of the United States. And... I don't know if it's supposed to be, I mean, it's obviously a joke, but I don't know if it's a joke generated by a, a script being written by someone from New Zealand who doesn't know how these things in the United States work. I think it's, I think it's just a joke on how much power and leeway government agencies are given in, in horror movies. And right. science fiction movies. I mean, they always they come in, they show a badge, and they can do whatever they want. When that's really not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Um, I guess a similar scene. Uh, the guys from Red Letter Media they did uh, when they did their Mummy review for the the 2017 Tom Cruise uh, Mummy movie, because uh, that's how that movie opens with uh, uh, Doctor Jekyll, played by. Excuse me, Russell Crowe. They they uncover a tomb of 
We're at Templar Knights, buried underneath the English Channel, which they're drilling for a new subway system. <laughs> and there are construction guys in there, and like Henry Jekyll, played by Russell Crowe, shows up, and there's a guy, he's like, you know, sir, sir, what are you doing here? And, you know, this is our, our construction site. And he just holds up a letter, like an envelope, and he says, it's mine now. We'll take it from here. And they just and the guy just takes the letter and, and walks away. And it's like that's not how this happens at all. And so the red letter media guys had this whole thing where they just it's just Mike and he's standing there with an envelope and Jay comes up by and he's like, Sir, what are you doing here? He's like, This is where I'm supposed to be now. And he just hands him the letter and he's like, Oh <laughs> You know, and it's it's i I, I agree. I I don't think this is a, a, a person who doesn't understand how the American system works. You know, mostly because the sheriff just looks at him like, are you serious right now? Are you telling me that the president has given you this ability, this power? Um, but he does, right? And he, he leaves him alone with Frank. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, Michael J. Fox really doing a lot of good work here. <clears throat> right. And until this point, he's been his fairly straightforward, laconic kind of beleaguered but lovable everyman you know you root for him he's he's a guy you want to see succeed but really in this scene and and for a while after it we see him really plumbing the depths right a a really sort of dramatic moment as he's trying to reconcile what he's been through and what he's seen and, and he openly accepts and, and says, I, I can see ghosts. This is what I can do. And it's it's just really nicely done. And, and he kind of breaks, right? Um, you know, Combs' character, um, Milton... He says that you know he's he's seen people like Frank before. He's seen people that that uh, you know say they believe these things and then use it to do you know, terrible things to others. And you know we as the audience now we're we're sort of being split because we know what Frank has seen and we know that he's being honest. But you know not even Frank can process what he's really been going through and so the the film takes a, a unexpected dramatic turn <clears throat> at least um, you know at least for me um, we get a lot of really interesting you know you mentioned earlier the wide angles and, and how everything's sort of shot together and we get a ton of that here the shot reverse shot in this sequence in particular is really impressive we get a lot of moving camera, rotating camera, uh, a lot of Dutch angles, a lot of really interesting shot composition. It reminds me a lot of Sam Raimi. Off it is. Yes, it feels very Sam Raimi. Um, which, you know, is a brief detour. We could talk about, you know, the sort of, the sort of atom bomb that Sam Raimi, and, and more importantly, how Sam Raimi produced his films was for independent horror cinema. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I've ever heard Peter Jackson talk specifically about Sam Raimi as an influence, but I have heard directors legitimately say, watching Evil Dead 
and seeing what they were able to do was what gave them the ability to say, oh, well, I can go out and I can do that too. Right. And, and so Raimi, not only from his influence on just horror in general, but his influence on independent filmmakers, right. People who could stand up and say, I'm, I'm going to go make a movie because this other guy did it with his friends and a few thousand dollars that he was able to raise from like and the local you, dentist. You don't need equipment. You don't need a budget. You don't actually need anything. You can just make a movie happen with the barest right. of tools. And and so, you know, Peter Jackson definitely comes from that camp. Looking at his early stuff, that's, that's really what it is. Um, but you can still see those influences throughout his work, even his modern work, even his Lord of the Rings, you know. There are shots in Lord of the Rings that are Sam Raimi shots, you know, the, the fast motion stuff through through crowds and stuff. I mean, there's, there's there's definitely influences, but this feels like the, you know, uh, Ash going crazy in Evil Dead 2 and, and the camera sort of shifting around the apartment and changing positions and locking off and roving around. Uh, it's, it's a really, really nice reverse, shot reverse shot sequence. And I also like that they, basically it seems like Frank is starting to believe what Milton is saying. Like he's so emotionally distraught by these experiences that he's had over the course of this evening that Milton is somehow able to convince him that maybe he did, right? And and that's a, a really interesting approach for us to take at this point. And, and again, I think it speaks to the fact, or it speaks to the possibility at least, that they were going to try and keep us in some kind of suspense about whether or not Frank was involved in this. Um, I don't know how you could watch the film up until this point and think that Frank was a killer, but this feels like a scene that was supposed to pay off that possibility. And again, I don't know if it really needs to or if it even does, but even Frank seems sort of marginally convinced by uh, Combs's suggestions. So what do you think? Do you think we were supposed to to believe that Frank could be involved in a way that he doesn't truly understand or know? Um, I took it as these terrible things keep happening to him and maybe he's not feeling responsible for it, but he feels connected to it enough that if he just stops doing anything, it may make the problem go away. Um... Because it seems like at this point in the film, he's still not entirely sure why this is following him the way that it is. And it must be because he can see spirits. Um, right. So it, it it's like a point where he just gives up. Yeah, he's definitely, he knows he's connected to this somehow, but he can't put those pieces together. And neither can we, at least not yet. Um, but all of that, that serious emotion gets completely derailed. Um, <laughs> when Milton reveals that he doesn't have any fear about what Frank might do to him because he is wearing an iron breastplate. <laughs> <laughs> and so in, in Superman-like fashion, Jeffrey Combs rips open his shirt to reveal that he's wearing a full iron breastplate, not a bulletproof vest, not some kind of Kevlar thing that would be completely normal for a police officer to wear, but a straight-up iron breastplate. Now, 
there's a bit of me that wants to believe that this is a coy nod to Back to the Future 3 and uh, his his shootout with Biff Tannen and wearing <laughs> the, the iron you know plate on his, his chest. But uh, really here, if, if we hadn't picked up on the fact that Milton Dammers is absolutely out of his mind, here's where it begins. And, and he is, is off the rails in terms of, of his interpretation of events. But fortunately, um, the ghosts reappear. Uh, with, and they, they enter with the, the intent to find Frank and, and break him out. A little bit of a, you know, comedy as they're you know, going through the dressing rooms. She McBride sees a, a friend of his in lockup from 30 years ago. You know, some nice, you know, comedy beats. Uh, but the ghosts discover that Frank has stopped believing, right? He has begun to move away from his ability to see spirits, which I think is, is kind of fascinating. And uh, they feel like they're not going to be able to get him out. So... Here's where I think the you know the pacing of the film begins to run into problems because we've we've split our characters up, which is something you generally want to do in your second act, right? You want to take everybody in different directions, but I, I think the movie has a little bit of problem, really, just only for like the next ten to fifteen minutes of kind of jumpstarting the engine of the movie and getting it all sort of sliding back together again. Right, because they've put Frank into a really difficult position. He's in jail. He's been accused of murder. He has no legitimate way to prove that he didn't do it, at least the last couple of cases. So what do we do with that? How do, how do we get him out of that? And it's, it's an old problem in writing where you've, you've written your character into a hole that you can't necessarily get him out of easily. Um, so we, we segue off to Lucy, who is, is trying to reconnect with Frank, or at least understand Frank, I guess. Like, I, I think she knows that he's in prison, yes? Uh, yeah, yes, yes. I think? I mean, I don't, maybe not, because she probably would have left before he turned himself in, so maybe she doesn't at this point. I, I really can't remember. But she goes to his house, um, still with her with her uh, ex-husband in tow kind of bumbling around behind her. But she stumbles across a uh, recording from Patricia's mother that uh, the demon has her again or something like that, and um, she's asking for Frank to come help. And so this is a... <clears throat> this feels like an added element to me because I'm not sure that there's a reason why Patricia's mom would call Frank. I don't know. Did, did you did you have that thought? Was that just me? But I, I thought that was a little strange. Um, it, it, it and feels it's weird like, I didn't remember that from watching the movie before. So when it happened, when it, this, this viewing, I was like, wait a minute, that's kind of weird. I don't know. It didn't stand out to me the first time, but it stood out to me this time. Yeah, I don't... It feels like a fairly blatant attempt to get Lucy involved in in the end game. Um, you know, she's she's touched upon it by coming to sort of check on Patricia. So there's 
I, I suspect that this this answering machine message was added to to get her back there. I think under I think there was originally another reason for her to come back, but we don't know. I mean, there's there's no other sort of alternate cuts beyond the director's cut that attempt to to make this relationship clear. But she kind of she doesn't come up in her car. She's she's walking up to the house in the rain which is a little strange yeah um so there's there's just a couple of pieces here again this is where i think the movie's editing kind of suffers right like the connective tissue that takes us from like one point to the next gets a little bit less clarified but we need to find out about patricia what she's dealing with we need to establish the the urn full of ashes and she needs to see you know frank's razor knife um, so Patricia tries to lay out sort of her side of the story that she never did any of the killing, that it was all Johnny, that he made her and, and she tries to basically get Lucy on her side. And then they take a little walk down memory lane together, which again, why a family that had suffered this horrific event would, would keep all of the newspaper clippings that say that the daughter is this horrific killer or accomplice. Suspect, I suppose. Suspish. <clears throat> but I, I think the, you know, again, the movie tries to give us another red herring here, and implying that the the mother is 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 the new killer or somehow involved in some way. Um, but really, what we we eventually find out is that she covered up the daughter's murder, uh, or. Basically, Frank's wife, after their car accident, was killed by Patricia and, and Johnny. Um, and then the mom covered it up, basically. Like, she she locked Patricia away and, uh, you know, didn't tell anybody what had happened, even though it's it's pretty heavily implied she knew that she had killed somebody. So, you know, everybody's culpable here. You know, that, that whole idea that we had at the beginning, that there's just more to this story that we don't understand or know about is starting to come into focus, but it's it's a little inefficient in how it's getting the job done. I mean, that's really the only complaint that I have. But she sees the the razor knife with FB on it, you know, Frank Bannister's razor knife uh, sort of thing, which becomes a, a key plot element in the, the final act of the film. Um, the uh, spirit in the walls makes its its reappearance. And and ultimately, Ray meets his his final end, I guess we could say, uh, and and he exits the film as he's uh, killed by presumably by the ghost. He does he does sort of redeem himself as a character, though. I like that they gave him just a slight amount of redemption. Still a, a turd. Yeah, but very uh, much so. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's, he's trying to be helpful in whatever way he can be. Um, but it's at that point that Lucy goes to, to visit Frank and, and attempt to, you know, sort of reinvigorate him. But we need to get Frank out of jail. That's the, the problem. So she, she tries to motivate him. She tries to sort of get him back on task and uh, mostly pulls it off. Uh, but all of that gets interrupted as the 
the, uh, the mysterious hooded figure, the, the image of death, kills both of Frank's sort of ghost friends, but they allow him to escape, and he gets out of jail um, pretty easily, all things considered, I guess. Um, they do have an interaction with the Milton Dammers, who I love the little squeak that Jeffrey Combs makes when they show up in the hallways. Just that, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> you know, again, it's just just perfect. Uh, he tries to to, uh, to to hold Frank, but you know they're obviously being attacked by these spirits that Milton can't see, and uh, they're able to escape with a little bit of help with the fire extinguisher. But Frank unfortunately loses both of his his ghost friends, Jim McBride and Jim Fife. Both they're they're killed by the ghost, uh, sent to their final end, their final resting place, I suppose. Um. So we're we're kind of firmly into the last you know chunk of the film now, and here's where I think if the premise of the film was weak, here's where I think it actually sort of picks up really strongly again. Because Frank decides that the only way that he's truly going to be able to understand what's going on and fight this thing is, you know, he says have an out-of-body experience, but basically he needs to die. He needs to become a ghost. And, you know, we've seen this in other contexts before, you know, 30 Days of Night, you know, you must become a vampire to save the town from vampires kind of thing. Um, But I really like this here. It feels self-sacrificial. Frank's kind of reached the end of his rope. He's feels kind of ready to die. He's ready to, to meet his end. And if he can help some people while he does it, he's going to do it. So, you know, in terms of the structure of this film, I, I think it would have been more interesting, not more interesting, but interesting to see Frank be this sort of like semi-villainous. We don't know if we can trust him. We don't know if he's a really good guy. And then we see the he makes this hard turn here where like he absolutely is. Um, Cause that's the transition he's supposed to be going through. I believe is, you know, sort of self-interested, only concerned about, you know, preserving his home, preserving his life. And now, no, you know, now I, I need to help people. Uh, and it's, it's really good. And Michael J. Fox plays that turn really expertly. And, and now he's, he's full on our hero of the film for this last, you know, 30 minutes or so. But so the plan is to have him um, take some drugs and and freeze himself, and and that will, will you know put him into a state of, of being dead. Right, his heart stopped; he's not breathing, but he can be resuscitated. Right, and so she's prepping for that, and of course she's interrupted by Milton, <clears throat> who's going to use this opportunity to simply let Frank die, and uh, you know go the whole way. And we get a lot of her yelling at him, and it's wonderful because he can't stand it. It's right. So he good. Just, he just recoils every time, like he's being shot. He has absolutely no, he has no ability to deal with conflict uh, with the opposite sex. And, but he has an Uzi, and, and he loves <laughs> that Uzi. He's going to constantly threaten people with that Uzi for the remainder of the film, and it's so good. And it's, shake uh, while he holds yeah. it. It's so funny. I have an Uzi. Um, I remember a time when the Uzi was a really cool gun. Everybody was all about that Uzi. Um, 
I think this is a little late in that life cycle. It feels more like an late 80s thing for me, you know, sort of the commando era where he's like, you got double Uzis, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, it, and maybe that's part of it too. Maybe that's part of the ridiculousness that, that this guy would have, like, this weapon that even in the mid-90s is like, it, And it's kind of an unhinged weapon because, you know, it. It's not like a, a typical service weapon, like a revolver or some kind of handgun. It's it's bigger and it's badder and it's a little more dangerous, which is like right. Milton himself. But of course, after the reveal that you know I have an Uzi, I I'm you know I'm capable of protecting myself. I'm big and I'm bad. As he goes to get in the car to take Lucy away and prevent her from saving Frank. What does he put down in the front seat but a a, a donut, a ring <laughs> that one would use because they have hemorrhoids. <laughs> it is it's one of those little character details <clears throat> that that just makes it it's perfect. And I, I love it because it's um it's it's really playing on the reveal of the Nazi character in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> Where you've got the guy who comes, you know, he's in the dark jacket, he's dangerous, we don't know what he's doing, oh, he's pulled this mechanism out, and oh my gosh, and, and the, it's really played to that same extent, because he like reaches into his pocket and there's this big bulge, and you think, oh, is it a gun, is it some other like you know, torture device, what is it? And then it's just, you know, the tiny hemorrhoid ring. And he lays it down gently in the seat and then sits. Um, again, a, a lovely little bit of humor. We we see his face in the, in the rearview mirror as he sits down, just kind of like, ugh. Right? Like, he's, he's just in constant pain. She, uh, she starts screaming, get a couple more freakouts, and then he turns up the music really loud, which is... Uh, Oh, what's the name of that song? Um, you told me you love me, baby. Uh, I don't even remember. But but he he's, plays music to overcome it. But this whole time, Frank has figured out how to exploit his ghost form. He's sort of hurling himself down hills. He's kind of flying a little bit and and trying to keep pace with uh, you know the, the Grim Reaper demon. A lot of really fun. This sequence is really fun. It's it's shot a bit awkwardly, if if, if I'm being honest. Um, oh, but I guess the other point is that uh, Lucy is is the next person who's marked for death. That was the other plot point that we completely, uh, I completely spaced on. But but she has the the number on her head, and so Frank is trying desperately to to make sure she stays safe. And, uh, you know, we get a bunch of little fun special effects sequences. He gets run over by a truck and gets squished. And you know, there's all kinds of fun little, you know, character deformation sequences. Finally, he understands what the other, what his ghost friends were talking about, about it being unpleasant to be a ghost. Right. Yeah. He's, he's, he's kind of grasped now what, what he's been doing to these ghosts for quite some time. Um. So we, we get a, a final, well, not a final, but we get a, a confrontation between Frank and uh, Death. He takes he takes Arlie Irby's uh, M60s and, and kind of shreds him 
which is really fun. It's a cool, cool little moment. And all that's left is the the face, and that's where Frank discovers that this is in fact uh, Johnny Barlow come back to life. Good old Jake Busey. Good old Jake Busey, and I want to say that the the face he sort of lifts it up and he throws it onto a, a cross on one of the graves, and it starts sliding down, and he, he's questioning it. And that effect looks fantastic. It really does that. That aged really well. Yeah, because it's like a splat, but his face is embedded in the splat, so it's it's a little bit of a face replacement. But it looks like they had Jake Busey made up in a, in a in an actual like practical makeup effect, and then they just blended that practical effect with the the CG effect around it, and and it looks pretty solid. Like that in and of itself looks looks really good. Um, and, uh, and Busey did a, a great job. But afterwards, all of the, not all, but a bunch of the original victims of Johnny Bartlett and Patricia show up. He's got the number carved into his head, so Frank's able to make the connection there between the, the, the carved numbers and, and that guy. But they come up to thank him for, for killing Bartlett, or well, not killing him, but you know, sort of removing him um, as a, a point of fear for them. And, um, you know, we kind of, he, uh, escapes, he, you know, obviously this isn't his end, so he's kind of gooping his way out. And some of these special effects are a little bit dodgy, if we're being honest, as he's kind of going down through, um, I got a, a significant lawnmower man vibe from a couple of these shots. <laughs> um, we I know, should I, talk about the lawnmower man uh, sometime. Yeah, yeah it's going to need Whew. to happen. Um, but I mean, this is that the, this is that era of of computer graphics. Um, you know, it, it absolutely is. But we get a nice little little fight here. Busey finally reveals himself um, out of the the Grim Reaper outfit, and and we see that he's in his prison garb. He's got a scorched top of his head. Um, you know, I, I like. You know, we haven't really talked much about sort of the the way the film portrays death and dying you know but but in essence you know you you die exactly the state you know or or your ghost is exactly in the state that you died in right so if you yeah ha if you had a heart attack in your sleep and you were wearing your boxer shorts well guess what you're gonna wear your boxer shorts if you were working out like lucy's husband you know you're gonna be in your workout clothes and so Busey died in his prison blues with a scorched head because he got the electric chair um, so it, really cool. Like it's, it's just a neat, it, it's neat to see because it does provide some character background. Like every person that you see, once you understand that fundamental rule, every person that you see, you can kind of very quickly suss together, you know, what is their backstory and what happened to them. And I think that that's a really neat visual language for you know the dead. And it's not necessarily original. You know, I've certainly seen other films uh, Beetlejuice, you know, we talked about that earlier, kind of does that same thing. You kind of die, you know, whatever state you died in is the state you're going to go to the afterlife in. So if you had your head shrunk by a, uh, you know, a native, super, you know, sort of racist way, you're you're going to go to that's how you'll be in hell. Fuck it, uh, Tim got, Burton. <laughs> yeah, if you got if you got chopped in half, guess what? You're going to be chopped in half in hell. I hope you got something for your legs to do. 
if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so but it, it's it's very visual. It's it's really nicely it's nicely executed here by uh, Jackson. I think it's a, a cool way to to sort of show us about these characters as we go. But right as Frank is is going to use his own uh, uh, you know scythe to to kill Johnny, he gets reawakened, and that is really cool. It's like the whole thing, the whole screen gets electrified, and then he gets kind of sucked away as as they use the the AED to bring him back to life. So that was kind of a neat effect, I thought. Um, but uh, you know, they bring Frank back. And then, what's the sequence of events? Okay, yeah, that's right. So he wakes up and says that Johnny is back and that Patricia is not safe. And he tells he tells Lucy to go and, and get Patricia out of the house. And so, so Lucy goes to the house by herself. And this was another piece where I was like, I don't, I don't think this was how this was originally stitched together. Uh, I think this is stitching together in the editing room with ADR because she, Lucy goes by herself instead of waiting for Frank to recover, uh, which didn't, did, it just didn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, but here, this scene is where we're finally, you know, sort of, we get the confirmation that Patricia is indeed involved because, you know, Lucy's kind of going around the house um, Patricia tells her that mother's okay with her going now. We, we get the real confirmation that Patricia is involved and that, that she and Johnny have this, so we say interesting relationship. Um, and again, those who are, are watching this for some kind of like tonal consistency or, or some, some undercurrent of seriousness probably pretty unhappy with this because basically it's painted as killing people together get them sexually excited right like it, yeah. it they they get uh you know really off on it and not and and you know that's that's not necessarily original in and of itself but the way that it's portrayed here it's it's very goofy right it's this very sort of over the top um, you know, sexuality that they experience, it feels very childish, right? Like it, it feels like a relationship forged when a girl was 14 or, or whatever she was supposed to be at the time and that nothing's really changed or, or grown or matured. And I'm sure that's intentional, right? I mean, like, you know, Johnny's dead. I mean, so he's not going to mature in any significant way. But it feels very schoolgirl crushy, and uh, I th again, I think it plays to to what the characters are supposed to be. I mean, Patricia's basically been stunted by her mother's uh, overbearing control, and and you know now she is is just sort of wrapped up with this guy again. We are told that it, this all happened kind of five years ago. She wasn't you know more traditional institution prior to that and then she was released on this new on this this new situation and that's where she was able to reconnect with Johnny uh, presumably through his ashes which are we ever told where she got those I we are remember not 
Which I'm I not don't sure. Think. No. I could be wrong. I, w- I might need to review that that scene again to to see for sure. But but in essence, she obtained them, and then you know his spirit was sort of tied to them, and that's how they were able to reconnect. But ultimately, Lucy is uh, you know made aware of the situation. She <laughs> uh, Patricia kills her uh, her kills her mother, and I don't know, man. Jake Busey's so good in this. He's he's so great. Like once it's finally revealed that he and Patricia are still talking to each other, and he's just—I don't know. I mean, you can always he's very unhinged. Like it's just such a great character, and he plays that crazy guy really, really well. He does, and there's some really interesting stuff. His—I don't know if his eyes are are contacts as well, but his eyes are—they're not whited out. They're basically just like deep blue. so he has this really sort of ethereal appearance. Um, I don't. I don't know. It just he looks really good. It's. I mean, there's a reason you hire a Busey. Like, let's be honest here. Like, you there's an effect that you're attempting to go for. I and think he's he, a great actor. I've always liked him in the in the bit parts that I've seen him in, and I liked. Mm-hmm. I like this character a lot, and I love Dee Wallace. She's so beautiful in this movie. Yeah. I know she's crazy and, and evil. She's the bad guy. But wow, there there were so many moments where I paused the film and I was like, good Lord, she just looks gorgeous. Um, like the makeup and costuming and was just all done really well for her. Yeah, I think it it feels very 70s. Um, her her costuming and, and her design, it, it feels period accurate because that would, you know, it's being made in 1996. Patricia would have, you know, gone into, you know, it would have been 30 years or so. And she still feels like she's dressed like someone from the 60s and, and you know, has the that appearance. And I think it's, it's really nice. It's good costume design. Um, what do you think of the stabbing scene? Right. So they're, they're choosing their weapons and then she begins stabbing the ghost form. Of, of Jake Busey and it, it sort of gets them both around. I think I think it it helps sort of flesh out the nature of their relationship. I mean, we get we get that she's infatuated with him, but we that's the scene where we really get that she's also infatuated with murder. Right, right, yeah. Like she's she's legitimately in she enjoys the act of killing. Uh, they both do, but she, you know, being the only living one. Uh, is is you know truly engaged with that process, um, and then you know from here on out, really, apart from a apart from a couple of diversions, we we kind of get a little mini slasher movie, right? Yeah. Um, which again, if you're if you're not looking for fairly wild tonal shifts, this is not the movie for you because I mean we're we're shifting gears yet again. We've had kind of an interesting paranormal mystery, and now we have the payoff to that mystery being these these this duo slasher, you know, ghost and and living murderer working together to to you know, rank up basically. Um, so she gets a shotgun, and you know, I'll be honest, I have not seen D. Wallace in a ton of things, at least not that I, I remember. I know she's been in a ton of things. And she's she's very consistent in those things that I do remember seeing her in, 
but man, it looks like she's having fun in this movie. Um, I, I get the impression that she hasn't really, um, I don't think she's gotten to shoot a lot of guns in the course of her film experience. (laughs) And I think she's having a really good time with that shotgun in this movie. Um, but she we, plays we, the the wide eyed gleeful girl really well, and it's, mm-hmm. it's it's very twisted and it's very cool. Yeah, uh, she even gets her little uh, you gets a little shining moment, right? It kind of blows a hole in the wall in the the doorway and puts her face through, and you know she doesn't say here's Johnny or anything, but you know she kind of gets that that little you know Jack Nicholson moment for her character. But regardless, uh, they they fight with. Johnny Bartlett in his spirit form one more time. He gets trapped in a painting, and then they shred the painting, and so he has to return to his ashes, uh, which apparently is, is, you know, is the source of his his energy being left. And so here we get our, our final push, our last little sort of MacGuffin, if you want to call it that, which is that they have to get his ashes to holy ground so they can uh, sanctify him and, and take him out. So now they're they're being hunted through the old hospital, which is the closest church because there's a chapel inside, and you know again a little little bit of a mini slasher film. D. Wallace is looking for them and they're evading and escaping and hiding and you know doing everything else. It has a and good amount of tension. It does, but the the coolest component of the sequence, in my opinion, is that. Uh, Frank, which I, I think we're supposed to believe that this is part of his psychic ability, right? Um, you know, something to do with his his connection to the un, to the undead. He begins experiencing flashbacks to the murder spree in the hospital. Um, so he's inserted inside all of these scenes that we previously only we previously only saw as sort of newsreel footage after the fact. And we start actually seeing the crime as it unfolded. Um, and I presume they did this because Frank Frank wasn't really there to get the details that Lucy did, right? To see the depths of what Dee Wallace uh, you know, or Patricia had, had done. So he's seeing it this way. And I kind and, of like that. I kind of like that we don't have one single scene where everyone is explained everything at once. I appreciate yeah. when movies don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and this sequence is great. It's basically a bunch... It's it's all executed through match cuts and um, set design and lighting cues where, you know, he'll be walking down a hallway and all of a sudden everything will flash to white. The, the hospital is cleaned back up. And now all of a sudden he is, you know, in the middle of Johnny Bartlett, you know, taking somebody out with a shotgun or uh, stabbing someone. And more importantly, he sees Patricia's actual role in the murders, uh, which, you know, she was committing the murders herself. It wasn't just all Johnny. And so I think it, the first time I, well, not really, not even the first time, but like the second time that I watched this film, I I questioned, you know, do we need this? Because it really just takes away from the danger that they're in the moment to a certain extent. And I was like, do we really need to see these scenes? We know what happened. We've been told what happened. Um, you know, do we need to see it? And this time, as I was watching, I, I kind of settled on yes. Yes, we do. 
because we we need to see the depths of depravity that these two reached in order to justify what what really is going to come for them next. Um, because Patricia's done a few bad things, but we could still argue that maybe she wasn't too bad. But here we need to see that they're a pair, they work together, and that they're both truly, truly awful. And and we get that here. We also get to see some really good reaction shots from Michael J. Fox. I mean, he's just... Again, it's sad that this is his last sort of feature film performance. Not because it's bad, quite the opposite, because I think it's really good. And I think he he still had a lot left to give, but you know, most people, you know, are, are well aware of, of Michael J. Fox's struggles and the things that he's he's overcome in his life to continue acting, you know, in, in whatever capacity he's been able to, which I, I'm certainly happy about. I enjoyed like his guest turn on Scrubs and, and some of the other smaller things he's done. As a person with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, that was probably my favorite performance he's ever given. Maybe even over Marty McFly was his turn mm. on Scrubs. It's it's very very well done, and he's excellent in uh, in that turn, uh, and I think he's excellent here too. But as all of this. Um, sort of comes to be, you know, there's a, a weird, I don't know, almost Rube Goldberg-esque gag where a pillar falls over something and, and it flings the ashes right into the hands of Milton Dammers, who has followed them to the hospital. And, and I, <laughs> in his role as guy who explains things in the film, uh, he releases Johnny's ashes, you know, setting him free once again, which, you know, we know as the audience how terrible that is. But Milton's like, oh, did I just let the spirit go? So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not realizing that, you know, yes, that's exactly what you've done. Um, so. I, I love his death scene quite a lot. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we've we've seen the creation of a couple of ghosts in the movie so far, and, and that basically it happens, like, the moment that you die, your ghost appears. And so Milton is, is you know, threatening Frank, and Frank just kind of falls backwards through one of the holes in the floor, and as a result, D. Wallace just blows his head off, just pops it quite legitimately, <laughs> like some kind of meat-filled balloon and and all that is left there is the the quizzical expression of the now ghost milton <laughs> dammers as he stares down the barrel of the gun uh just a love just a great transition really good um and it sets up a, a visual gag at the end of the film but so so jeffrey combs is is extricated from the movie very quickly by by a well-placed shotgun blast and Frank, you know, falls his way through multiple floors uh, to relative safety. Um, but now Frank has to recall the events of his wife's death, which I, I guess we're meant to believe that he hadn't really been able to truly remember what had happened uh, just yet. And again, this feels sort of like a remnant of a version of this story where Frank 
truly felt that he might be the killer or that it was possible that he was doing these things without being aware. But, you know, here it's revealed that it was actually, you know, Johnny and Patricia who had killed her in the forest, as we said earlier. And right as they're about to kill him, like right as they're about to kill him, she realizes she's out of ammunition and and they can't do it. Which is fun. You know, we get that nice tension building moment as she's getting ready to pull the trigger and then just nothing happens. But so um, they kill Frank, right? Like then they, they choke him out, I think. Um. Yeah, she yeah. Uh, yeah she chokes him to death, and he dies. You know, and and Jake Busey's like, yeah, baby, yeah, do it, baby. Oh yeah, it's so good. And and so Michael J. Fox dies, and you know. I don't know. I, I really love, <laughs> I like this ending scene. I'm not, I'm not sure about it. We haven't seen like a ghost rip the spirit of another person out of them just yet. But, you know, theoretically we've seen guys, you know, get their hearts squeezed. So it makes sense that this could be possible. But so our, our ghost Frank runs up, grabs the spirit of Patricia out of her body, gets Johnny to follow him up and then starts pulling them along while he's like following the tunnel to, to heaven, presumably. Um, and, and this scene's a, a little bit, it's a little silly, I'll, I'll admit, but at this point in the movie, it's also a ghost movie. I'm so on, I'm so on board. I'm, I'm not going to yeah. fight it, you know, you know, if you're, if you're not willing to, see ghosts travel their way through the the tunnel of light in a ghost movie where that happens constantly, then, you know, you're in the wrong spot. Um, but so as they, they reach the, the pearly gates, if you want to call it that, uh, Johnny and Patricia reunite and they're like, we're going back to do some more killing. Woohoo. Um, and then, you know, we get such a great moment as we see uh, Frank's ghost friends, right? They reemerge, and instead of looking all crappy, and he's dressed they're fully in his... aged, and they're they're well dressed, right. and yeah. yeah, like everything's great now, right? They're in heaven; they don't have to worry about it. Uh, the nerds got like a Michael Jackson leather jacket on. Like, yeah, I'm like he's not a dork anymore. He's cool. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's not even a nerd anymore because in heaven there are no nerds. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's still got the, the dorky glasses, I guess, but, but, uh, so they tell Frank, Hey Frank, step back, buddy. You're, you don't want to see this or, you know, this is going to be pretty rough. And, uh, and the, the, uh, tunnel of light turns into a tunnel of, of fleshy worms. <clears throat> Again, just a lot of like really interesting texture work. Um, you know, it, very cool, uh, you know, again, 1996 special effects, but, uh, you know, they get bit taken down to the other place. Uh, what does Chiba Bride say? The, the express bus to hell? <laughs> <laughs> no lines, no waiting. Uh, yeah, just, you know, you can take your ride anytime you want. And we get our ghost moment. He, uh, he is standing in heaven with his friends and his wife appears. Right. Um, 
you know, so Frank's unrequited love, his his guilt over what happened between him and his wife, we're able to sort of get a, a nice cathartic release as she arrives. And, and basically he leaves heaven. He's He's fully expecting to stay. That's the one thing I really like here is that Frank did all of this under the pretense that, that this was it. Um, he, he had no intention of, of going back. And instead it's, it's his friends who say, nah, no, you, you need to go back, man. It's not your time. And so they kind of push him back through the clouds and he, he heads back to earth. Um, and the, the, you know, sort of basic thrust of this is you need to you know, live your life. Go be happy. Like, you don't have to be miserable anymore. You don't have to be that guy. You're not a and, ghost with unfinished business. Right, right. You know, so, I mean, if we really want to run the metaphor all the way out, but since his wife's death, Frank himself has been a ghost, right? That's why he's had these experiences, is is he has not been, been living his life. As, as Oprah would say, he's not living his best life. Um, and, and so he gets the release from his friends and his wife that, Hey, just, just go live, just be alive, right? Don't worry about it. And, um, you know, he, he reawakens hopefully with this, this realization in hand. And, and then we get our lovely sometime later cut. I love those where you know the time has passed, but you don't know how much. <laughs> exactly. You don't know how much, but you know it's enough that the house is being torn down, uh, which apparently you can see in the first cemetery scene. You can actually see them tearing down that house in the background uh, because that they shot that cemetery scene really late <laughs> in the production schedule and they were tearing that house down. <laughs> so fairly, you can kind of see that process going on. Um, but so, you know, I don't know if this is sequel bait or not, right? Because the last sequence is the sheriff coming up asking for basically the ability for them to, to go into business together, to be paranormal hunters uh, together. And it almost feels like leaving it open for, for more, which you know, I would be okay with. You know, it doesn't, didn't really happen, but you know, there certainly seems to be the indication that, you know, Frank has not lost his ability to interact with the dead. And in fact, Lucy has now gained the ability. Exactly. She too can see Milton uh, Dammers in the back of the sheriff's car, riding around with him, looking perturbed, right? And so she too, because of her intense experience, uh, can can see the ghosts. And it ends with the Mutton Birds fantastic cover of Don't Fear the Reaper. That's right. That's right. So yeah. good. Right. Uh, a, a very appro an apropos song given uh, the film we just watched with the repeated Grim Reaper uh, nods. But um, so, a, you know, a nice little wrap up ending <clears throat> for a. You know, I, I don't want to say one of the, the considerations or one of the, the problems was that the plot for this is, is quite thin. Um, I don't necessarily know if the plot is thin, but I think it it doesn't necessarily justify all the moves that the characters make in the movie. But one thing that I think is very clear, because this the script of this is, is Fran Walsh and, and 
Peter Jackson, who would then, you know, with Philippa Boyens, would then go on to now adapt The Lord of the Rings as their next project. But one of the things that I think this film does, and I think, honestly, pretty much all of Peter Jackson's films, even his lesser films like King Kong, do well, is that the emotional payoff for the characters in the stories is always well-earned. Like, if there's one thing that they do as a screenwriting team, it is that they think about the emotional considerations of their characters. Where are they when they begin? What's happening to them over the course of the film? And where do they end up? Is always is always well done with them, in my opinion. I think that they just... If anything, that may be their most important thing. And I, I think that's why Lord of the Rings works is because Lord of the Rings is such a big story that when you finally get to the end of that story, what you need to focus on are, is the emotional journey that the characters have gone on. Absolutely. Which is, which is why that movie has 15 endings, is because we really <laughs> need to pay off all of the characters and what they've been through and the things that they've done. And, and that's, that's what we deserve as an audience is, is to not just see the, the wrapping up of the plot threads, right? It, it's, yes, we need to see, you know, Gondor. Uh, we need rise emotional again. satisfaction. Right. But we need to feel like these characters have grown and we've grown with them. And that is where the Lord of the Rings kills it. Um, you know, that's, that's why when, you know, everybody bows the knees to the hobbits oh. uh, on the top of the white Don't tower. Don't even bring it up. <laughs> that's why there's not a dry tear in the house is because that emotional moment is earned. And even in this movie, which doesn't necessarily have that scale or, or that level of, of emotional, you don't even have to necessarily do that in a film like this. But I think if you really follow Frank's story specifically, there is a really wonderful sense of emotional catharsis for his character. He really does feel like he changes and grows throughout the course of the, of, of the film. And then at the end, when he has moved on, when the house is being knocked down and he's drinking champagne while it happens, you do get the idea that, that this character has undergone a journey that's been important. And, yeah. you and know, it's amazing in a comedy horror film that you can pack that much characterization in. Right. And, you know... Again, referring back to the Burbs, which we've discussed before, uh, that was a common weakness cited with that film is that the characters never really had that kind of growth. And, you know, this is where I think a movie like The Frighteners definitely excels, is that it has much much better rendered, I'm not going to say perfectly rendered, but has better rendered characters. Um, and, and as a result, you feel more emotionally satisfied by the time it wraps itself up. And, you know, I, I really enjoy it. I mean, even at the end, everything's bright, everything's sunny. You know, pretty much the entire movie is either in darkness or it's overcast gray skies. And then at the end, we see our first glimpse of sun. So there's a nice little, you know, sort of thing going on there even. The only other thing I might have liked to have seen is, you know, another return to the graveyard, right? Because we get that shot at the end after he takes out the Grim Reaper or towards the end where you know, like all of the denizens of the graveyard come to basically like say, thank you. you know, thanks for getting rid of that terror or whatever. I would have maybe liked to see one more stroll through the graveyard myself, but that's a you know, neither here nor there. But in any case, you know, I think the frighteners 
it is a small film. It was designed to be a small film. Uh, apart from the special effects, I think they, you know, it's a pretty restrained production uh, for the most part. But it, it never feels small, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, this is, this had a, a $29 million budget. Apparently, they to finish the special effects, they had to go back and ask for another five, six million, I think, something like that. Um, so it would have been budgeted even lower had the special effects not, not been as robust as they ended up being. But um, I, you know, this is the summer of, you know, Independence Day, which had a like 75, 80 million dollar budget. So, I mean, it does a lot with a little. At least in my opinion. And, uh, and I, I, think, I, I think until recent memory, that was Peter Jackson's thing, was doing a lot with very little. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even Lord of the Rings, even though those were very expensive films, um, comparatively to other blockbusters being made at that time, they were not, at, they were not incredibly expensive. Um, you know, and, and most of that budget was special effects. So, you know, I think... In, in trying to sum up The Frighteners, I think it, like The Burbs, is a great horror comedy, right? Where you get legitimate, actual horror, right? Good scares. Um, the special effects are often in service of building that tension, especially the last sequence in the hospital. Very well executed, really nicely designed, uh, good jump scares, decent amount of, of gore, a little bit of violence. You know, so you get really good there, and then you also get some truly funny, legitimately funny humor. Both from, you know, very straightforward, you know, ghost characters that do pratfalls and do silly things like try to have sex with sarcophagi. But also, you know, a character like Milton Dammers, who is fundamentally humorous because he's so over the top and played so well by Jeffrey Combs. Like you said, the 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 hemorrhoid ring getting pulled out of the jacket is so perfect. <laughs> is is perfect. The the opening of his shirt to reveal his iron, um, you know, his iron breastplate, perfect. Um, and then that gets mirrored later. Is it? I guess he reveals to Lucy all of the the scars of his, his yeah, travels. He, right. He tells her all about his history working with the Manson family and right. satanic cults and. How they all have scars here. Who's a man? Who's the, <laughs> he thinks he's he, controlling the car with his mind. <laughs> right. That All that stuff is, is just so well done and really, really funny. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a whole package kind of film, especially if, you, if you're a horror fan, uh, because there are a lot of callbacks to, to famous horror classics. You know, there's a lot of Sam Raimi stuff. There's a lot of Halloween stuff. You know, there's a character getting chased through a house with a butcher knife, you know, in a, a very particular shape. You know, so you can see it's, it's you know, Peter Jackson sort of getting to work out some of his you know, horror iconography and, and execute it well. He said, if anything, this film is worth watching just because it does represent a very crucial step in the development of Peter Jackson as a filmmaker. And a step that if he hadn't have made it, not only from a technology standpoint, having access to the special effects necessary to make The Lord of the Rings... But, you know, the relationship with the studio, 
the ability to you know, navigate the complexities of making a studio film in New Zealand, which you know he was committed to do again for Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't know if we would have Lord of the Rings as a thing without this movie, right? This movie played a crucial role. And, and even in, in interviews and stuff now, like Jackson has said as much, right? Like, uh, you know, one of the core questions that they had was after they finished the movie, they're sitting there at Weta Digital with all these incredibly expensive computers. And, and Jackson was sort of like, well, well, what can we do with this? You know, what, what project could we launch into that would justify keeping these around instead of selling them off or, or you know, just doing away with the company in general? And, you know, one of the projects that came up as a potential was Lord of the Rings. And that's where everything sort of got the ball rolling. So, um, you know, Frighteners fits into that history in a really interesting way. And this again, viewing, I saw a lot more of the connectivity between his earlier work and the Lord of the Rings, which I guess now is his earlier work. I mean, <laughs> it is yeah. we're quite a ways along. Yeah, I mean, he is, he is definitely, you know, Lord of the Rings. And I guess that's why, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this movie is I think for a lot of people, their their awareness of Peter Jackson as a filmmaker begins with Lord of the Rings. Right? They don't know the things that he did prior to Lord of the Rings, which is not a tremendous amount of output. It's not like he made 15 movies in New Zealand and then all of a sudden Lord of the Rings happened. You know, it's really just three projects. But those three projects were really foundational in building the guy that would eventually be able to do those movies um, in a ton of ways, right? Like this movie, while it does have a tremendous amount of special effects and, and CG effects, it also has a tremendous amount of practical effects going on as well. A lot of things being done in camera, a lot of um, you know, stuff getting moved around, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that you, you eventually see again in Lord of the Rings. So, you know, I, I don't want to say that this is worth watching if you're a Lord of the Rings fan just to sort of see those pieces of connective tissue, if you want to call it that. But in some ways, it kind of is, right? Like I feel to, that way. You know, I mean, I, if you're interested in him as a filmmaker at all, or if you like the way that he interpreted the Lord of the Rings, this is this is sort of essential to understanding how he got there. Mm -hmm. And his general approach to filmmaking, I think. Um, you know, how he tells stories, the way that he constructs scenes. Um, you know, you can just, you can feel all of those things in operation here. Not necessarily executing 100%, not quite yet. Um, but all of the, the elements in play, right? The, I, would, I would almost characterize Peter Jackson as a playful filmmaker. Right, he he. You can feel when he's having fun, and and his camera, his moves, the the way that he constructs scenes, it's it's playful, it's enjoyable, and I, I think that that's really important, right? Like Christopher Nolan, everything feels like uh, a finely tuned wristwatch, right? Like just humming along, you know. But it's not necessarily fun, right? Like I don't watch Chris Nolan movies and go like wow, I'm having a great time. Yeah. Right? Like, it doesn't feel like that. But with Peter Jackson, he's capable of generating that kind of emotion with his filmmaking. And, and this movie is fun. It just feels fun. It's, it's scary at times, 
it's it's dark, but at the same time, it's got this propulsive sort of enjoyable quality. A lot of that's definitely being created by Michael J. Fox and and his performance, but it's it's also Peter Jackson having a good time, and and that's cool. It, it's neat that he got hooked up with Zemeckis because in a lot of ways, Zemeckis's earlier stuff, you know, like. Um, Romancing the Stone and um, you know, obviously Back to the Future, but but even the stuff he did before that. What was the Tim Robbins movie with used cars? Yeah, that was really like his first big one. God, but I even remember. Yeah, but even that one, like it's 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 fun. It's just it's an enjoyable movie to watch, and, and this falls into that category for me too. Um, all right, well let's let's kind of move into final thoughts. I guess we can kind of you know wrap up with the Frighteners here. Kind of think a little bit about it. But, you know, we, we like to discuss the, the one thing, right? So obviously, Frighteners didn't hit. Uh, it didn't destroy Peter Jackson's career, thank goodness. But it certainly was not a, a huge success, right? Critics didn't hate it. It's got a, a nice middle-of-the-road ranking. But it, it definitely was not financially successful. Uh, I think it debuted at number five on the American box office. Uh, behind Independence Day, Mission Impossible was still in theaters at this point, so... It just kind of got left behind. Uh, would have probably done better as a fall release, as we discussed earlier. But so, what might have given it the opportunity to shine, to grab people's attention in a way, right? Because it, it certainly didn't get that chance in 1996. Hmm. I looked into sort of the history of the film a little bit, and. I know Peter Jackson was not happy with the way it was marketed because it was not marketed at all. Um, but really, I come, I keep coming back to rushing the release of the film by about four months, maybe more. Um, I feel like if they had been given until October maybe there would have been some more deliberate editing choices. Like some of those story things that either feel too detailed, like they should have been expanded and, and fleshed out more, or some of those things that feel like we didn't quite get enough. Maybe those would have been better balanced if it had just had more time. It's one of mm. those films I wonder if there's maybe even beyond the, the director's cut, because the director's cut adds, what, like 10 minutes to the movie? Something um, like that, 10 to 12, not much. Yeah, I, I wonder if there was a missed opportunity to flesh out some of those things, possibly with reshoots or um, maybe just cutting room floor stuff that didn't make it into the film. I've always kind of wondered that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what... Generally, I think any film will definitely benefit from more time. Um, you know, the, the studio who, who pushes release date over finished product is, is generally looking for trouble. Um, so I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think there are areas of this film that could be very easily tightened up. A lot of it in that transition from the second act to the third act and getting your characters into position for the final set of sequences having them all appear logically in the places where you need them to be doesn't really do that very well um, or, or struggles with it at the, at the least. I mean, even if it's not, it's not fully detrimental to the process of the film, I mean, it doesn't fall apart. 
but it definitely feels like they're they were struggling to sort of put the pieces in place. And a lot of that maybe had to do with cut scenes, scenes that they didn't have the money for the special effects for, scenes that they couldn't edit for time. You know, there's lots of things that it could be. I guess for me, I kind of think the movie could have leaned harder into the horror myself. Um, not a ton necessarily, even though it could have gone further. But I think this movie was generally marketed as a comedy. Like that was its its primary. Uh, you know, if you look at trailers and stuff. Heavy emphasis on Michael J. Fox, who was was not known for scary films or violent films uh, at any point in his career. Pretty much straight comedies, dramas. So it was marketed too much as a comedy. And people that went in expecting a comedy, while this film is funny, I don't think those are the things that will stick with you after the movie is over. I think the horror is what sticks with you. So I would have probably had it pushed the horror a little bit further. And if, if not that direction, then go way harder into the comedy, right? Like as it exists now, I think that balance is pretty good, right? We've just finished up, you know, several long discussions about Joe Dante and Joe Dante is another director who is very good at balancing those two things of having something be genuinely frightening and also ridiculously funny. It's not an easy balance to strike. It's it's really really hard, and I think I think Peter Jackson is a director that definitely can do that balance. But I think this story would have benefited from leaning a little bit more into the horror, marketing it more as a horror film with comedy elements instead of a comedy film with horror elements. Um, but again, that balance is very back and forth, right? Because there is a ton of humor in this. A lot of it is really funny. Um, but I mean, one of the funny reveals is that guy ripping his shirt open and showing all like the pentagram scars on his body, right? So like, how do you balance that? And it's it's not always easy. But I think the people who discover this film and love this film today are horror fans. Those are the ones who are coming back to it and saying... Yeah, I love this movie. Whereas a person who just loves comedies, probably I don't, not. I don't think they're coming to the Frighteners for their comedy buzz, right? So I, I think that that's that for me would probably have been what I would have suggested because you know we we've had a couple weeks in a row now where we've had people frustrated with a movie for genre confusion, right? Like why don't you just be what you are? Um, and I don't want that for this because I think the, the comedy has to be there. And honestly, really good horror generally also has really good comedy. I mean, look at Scream. Like Scream is a, is a scary ass movie, but it also is incredibly, funny. incredibly funny at times. So you, you need that, that, that balance, that dispersion of tension. You know, it needs to be there. It should be there, especially in a movie like this. But I think it could have leaned a little harder into the horror and, and maybe found an audience at the time with horror fans. But we have to also remember that the mid-90s horror was on the outs. Nobody was making horror movies in the 90s. You know, Scream is right around the same time that that exploded, but it took a while for the horror engine to sort of kick back into gear. I mean, this is the time when we're making, like, 
Jason X and you know like yeah. all of that garbage. I, oh, okay, sorry, sorry, Jason fans. Jason X is not garbage, but it is a yes, lesser. It is. I'm not sorry, Jason fans. <laughs> come don't, at me. Don't come at me, Jason fans. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't, I don't I'll want die to on this hill. I don't care. <laughs> It's just, you know, it's it's one of those, it was a bad time for horror in general. So marketing a sort of niche horror comedy in the middle of summer when nobody was terribly interested in horror to begin with, you know, not really your thing. Jason X was 2001, so it was about six years later. But I mean, again, this is just a weird time. Like horror was was not in its its renaissance well, I yes. mean, the movie in this era that brought it back was Scream. And it's that's wildly different from this movie. Yeah, and Scream was the same year. It was later that year is when Scream hit. And, you know, that kind of kick-started horror as a, as a legitimate genre again. Yeah, I mean, Scream was, was generally attributed with that. And uh, rightfully so. Yeah, Scream was released in December. So let's let's imagine a world where Frighteners didn't get pushed up. Right? So that means that Frighteners hits in late October. Right? Does okay with not being buried by Independence Day and Mission Impossible. And then we get Scream in December. That's a one-two punch of high-quality, well-produced decent horror right I, I think that changes the landscape of where frighteners fits in that horror renaissance and and how appropriate that peter jackson this you know low budget horror filmmaker from new zealand gets to sort of spearhead that move and you know it might have changed things maybe lord of the rings wouldn't have been his next project so maybe it was good that the frighteners failed and he was looking for anything else that he could do but I, I think Frighteners definitely could have found a better audience if that had been the case. So, I mean, for me, it, it, a little bit more of the horror to, to grab those fans, maybe a bit more, a bit more appropriate, maybe sort of spearheaded, you know, made it a part of a growing movement that eventually kind of exploded uh, on top. But we'll see. Well, all right. Uh, well, obviously, we're pretty bullish on The Frighteners. I don't think we've made any bones about that. I think this is a, a wonderful little film from the early days of a director that has, has wound up reshaping the film industry at this point, right? I mean, the, the three-film franchise production, definitely a thing now because of Lord of the Rings. And uh, Peter Jackson certainly was at the center of that. So uh, what is your... That's right. Got to do it as three. So, what is your failure piece score for the franchise? I I admit I love this movie. Um, like when you said let's do the Frighteners, I was like, oh boy, uh, an excuse to watch this movie. Um, this is a ninety-six for me. The things that Ooh. I don't like about this movie are so pointless and small, and the movie's given me literal decades of of enjoyment around this time of year is usually when i break it out and watch it mm -hmm. um yeah it's my regular october watch for sure it's it stars people that i absolutely love i'll watch jeffrey combs do anything i mean he was the reason i finished watching enterprise 
was just to see him as yeah. Shran. Um, I love Michael J. Fox. I think everybody loves Michael J. Fox. I love like Trini Alvarado. I love D. D. Wallace. I, I love everybody in this movie. So it's just it's a win through and through. But I think that high score has to come with the knowledge that I was already a fan of Peter Jackson's movies when this came out. <laughs> I already mm. liked yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember where I I stumbled across Dead Alive. Um, it was probably at a video rental store. Then it was in like the "We're Done with These Tapes." I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Because um, the cover was striking, right? It the cover like, scared me. Yeah, the cover is is like a skull emerging from a mouth. Like it's it's very very. I mean, like at one point that is that is what you did is you walked into the video store and you just kind of scanned the wall for interesting covers. That's why I've seen um, Graveyard Shift. Don't yeah, see Graveyard mm-hmm. Shift. It's right. bad. <laughs> it's a good cover though. It's a great cover. Um, and and so I remember. Uh, you know, picking it up and watching it and just being blown away by it. Because it too, like the Frighteners, very funny. It's really humorous. Great lines. Um, you know, you again you can sort of see the progression of Peter Jackson as a filmmaker sort of stepping through these movies. And and Frighteners is is all about that too. And in some ways, you know, complaining about various you know, tones being thrown at you. Can something be horrific and funny at the same time? You know, a lot of that comes down to personal preference, but I appreciate a filmmaker that is willing to explore. And Peter Jackson is definitely that. And and The Frighteners is an exploratory film in really good ways. Um, and, and in some ways, I think a lot of modern horror directors are chasing the ability to do that. Um, you know, I mean, did you see it, Chapter 2? I did, yes. That is a movie that tries to do a lot what, of things. <laughs> what the Frighteners is doing and and fails pretty miserably at it. Yeah. Um because that movie wants to be funny. Okay, perfect example. Perfect example. It chapter 2. Uh Eddie Kasprak is is down in the basement of the uh pharmacy, right? He sees the leper from his childhood. The leper attacks him. The leper falls on him. Begins like dribbling the the goo Ugh. on his face. Right. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, non diegetic music. Just call me angel. In not the funny. Morning. What? That was not funny. No, there's it nothing no about sense. it that's funny. It doesn't make sense. Right. What it means is we shot a shot. We got it in the editing bay. We realized it's not scary. Well, if it can't be scary, can it be funny? And the answer is no. It's like they think that's non sequitur humor, and, that, and that's, not, that's not how that works. <laughs> no, not at all. And, and Peter Jackson is a, is a filmmaker that could have pulled that off. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the difference between... Andy Machete, as much as I like Andy Machete, Mama's a great movie. It Chapter 1, solid movie. Um, it Chapter 2, less of a solid movie. And it's a hard balance to strike. And Peter Jackson, I think, gets closer than a lot of directors are capable of getting. And, and for me, Frighteners will stand the test of time for that reason alone. It's, it's a, a film that 
it's a horror film with real heart, like actual beating heart at the center of it. And that is hard to find. So for me, uh, I, I'm very much in the same vein. This is like a 90, 97, 98. Like this is perfect. It is, it is, it exemplifies what I think a failure piece is. It's a movie that, that escaped notice. Nobody really paid attention to not a ton of people, you know, definitely outside of horror fans. Like if you're a horror fan, you probably know this movie, but outside of horror fans, I don't think a ton of people know this movie exists. It's hard to find. Um, you know, they haven't put it back out. I think there's a Blu-ray cop. They did make a Blu-ray of it in like 2011 or something, but it's, it's just not a film that gets trotted out very often, even though it's, it's really part of an essential understanding of who Peter Jackson as a filmmaker is. So for me, yeah, this is a hard recommend. If you have not seen the Frighteners and you have a, a passing interest in Peter Jackson, you have a interest in, in the development and, and reignition of horror as a genre. You love Sam Raimi, you love horror comedy or a horror tinged with comedy. This is absolutely, you gotta watch it. Like, you just, you gotta watch it. Um, so yeah, for me, 100%, watch The Frighteners. Uh, especially yes. now. Like, if you can watch it before Halloween, do it. Do not hesitate. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful movie. <clears throat> Alright, so any other, any other final thoughts on The Frighteners? I... I'm probably going to watch it again because usually after we're done talking about a movie, I want to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's and, and this is a movie that I think bears. Um, I think it bears multiple watches because there is some subtlety here. There's good character work. There's good performance. Uh, a lot of really fun visual gags. Uh, it has it has that era of completeness that Peter Jackson's movies do, right? There's a, a thoughtfulness behind everything that's going on. And I think it's super evident that he was, was already building to that uh, at this point in his career. So absolutely watch it, watch it again, enjoy it, love it. And uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. All right. So where can you be found on social media? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Very nice. I can be found at TBaskin on Twitter. And then, of course, together you can find us at FPeace Theater, I believe. So uh, at FPeace Theater on Twitter. And fillyourpeace at gmail.com if you'd like to email us and say hey. Um, we will see you next week. We will continue our month of scares and uh, another spooky film under discussion. So we will see you then. Have a great week.